This episode of Ally Meekly is brought to you in partnership Whoa. with Finding Lost Angeles, which if you're not already aware, which I assume a lot of our listeners, probably a lot of crossover. Yeah. It's another good resource out there for people who are interested in the history and past of Los Angeles and things that aren't there anymore and things that are still there, but probably shouldn't be or almost gone. I didn't know this, but I had found out that the Coconut Grover's doors are still there because of them. I've been following- Coconut Grover? Coconut Grover. (laughs) He's the Hawaiian cousin to Grover from Mezzanine Street. Uh, From Mezzanine Street? What are you saying? Sesame Street. Which in Hawaii is called Poi Street. That's funny. That's Um, kind of funny. Not really. (laughs) Yeah, well. Yeah, well. here. I showed up, didn't I? I can't win them all. (laughs) But anyway, let's keep talking about finding Los Angeles. This is something that a lot of people who like us would also be interested in. And mm-hmm. their website is findinglostangeles.com, or you can find them on Instagram at findinglostangeles. Really beautiful, classy pictures taken of places that are still accessible to a lot of Angelinos. A lot of people will hit us up in person being like, what can we do in Los Angeles? Or what's still, we want to see something historic. This feed, uh, Finding Los Angeles, their website has a lot of good ideas out there. So exactly. if you're looking for something fun to do, you can always go there. Yeah. And on their website, they have an interactive map that shows mm-hmm. you like in the city and you could click on each thing. And they have articles. They have like historical articles yeah. on things like the for the witch's house or for the 19th. 1942 alien invasion yeah. and the Dunbar Hotel and there's a lot of really like you said a real lot of really nice historic and new pictures. I'm pretty sure I've used them in research for this episode oh, really? before. So it's it's good Perfect. information yeah. and it's they're in- both incredibly attractive too. Greg, come on. They're good looking. They're they they model for their pictures, and I think yeah, that's that's the look. It is. That's what I've been going for for years, and yeah. I always seem. To it's the one it. thing we're missing. Is <laughs> high fashion. High fashion. Their feed is great. It always kicks ideas around my brain on what do we do next on the show. Yeah. Follow them. Subscribe to their newsletter and go to their website, and I think you'll like it a lot. Yeah. And now here comes our intro. Oh no. Oh no. Skip. 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 Fifteen. Maybe like press it like twelve times. Then you'll be done. See you on the other end. Poi Street. All right, our four-act intro about the rise and fall of the golden age of Hollywood as told through the life of Judy Garland is all written up. We've already submitted it for Emmy consideration. All we have to do now is make the darn thing. Now the age-old question, which one of us sounds more like Judy Garland? It's me. All right, let's hear it. Okay, feed me a line. Say, there's no place like home. Say it again. There's no place like home. Okay. <clears throat> ain't no place like home. There ain't no place like home. There ain't, there ain't. So is it, it going to be me? I said Judy Garland. That's me, mate. Judy Garland. No, this is Judy Garland. Hey, I'm Judy. Remember me from movies. See, now that's Judy Garland. That's not my Judy. This is Judy. Somewhere over the rainbow. No, Judy sounds like this. Somewhere over the rainbow. No, no, no. Judy Garland sounds like this. Somewhere over the rainbow. No, listen. Somewhere uh, over the rainbow. Eh. Wrong. It's like this. Somewhere over the rainbow. What's the deal with this rainbow? It's not raining. I'm not wrapping a present. What's the deal? In Munchkinland, a house fell on a woman and I was I was nowhere near it. I am not a murderer. I am Judy Garland though. No, I'm Judy Garland. Remember me, drummer in the Lollipop Guild. Well, this town doesn't need a guild, it needs a sheriff. And that's me, partner, Judy Garland. A sheriff! They don't need a sheriff! They need me, Binky! I mean, Judy Garland! Oh boy! This town does need a Judy, and you're no Judy! 
I can't do the goofy laugh. Can you do it? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I'm Judy Garland. On tonight's show, we got a uh, spot-on impression of me. Piggy, I'm Judy Garland. I don't want it in black and white. I want it in color about 30 minutes in. Mary, how did I get here? You wouldn't believe I wrote a twister. Mary. Mary, Toto was digging up Mrs. Gulch's flowers, and now I'm here, Mary. Mary, there's monkeys in town. Monkeys, they fly. They the straw fell me. I'm not in Kansas, dollar, but Mary, Mary have I dislodged myself from Every time you play Dark Side of the Moon, a munchkin hangs himself. Judy Garland. Mary. What a beautiful voice. Oh, you were way off. Not me, though. Helping the little lady along, are you, my fine gentleman? We're just trying to do justice to you, our queen. That's a good little girl. Oh, pet name, how cute. Who killed my sister? Was it you? What? What the hell is she talking about? I can cause accidents too. What happened to your sister? Not an accident, okay? Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? Stop calling me that! I'll get you, my pretty. You can threaten us all you want, Judy Garland, but don't you threaten our little cat. And your little dog too. Don't tell her. Oh yeah? You and what flying army? Oh, we ran out of clips. Does that mean we don't have to do an intro this month? Yeah, I guess no intro. Ah, oh, good. Now I get to go home. There's no place like home. <laughs> and neither of us were singing real we, songs we were hitting the same notes <laughs> and we had the same feeling going on but we were singing two different songs and that's the way our that's entire friendship is, is in yeah. Yeah, <laughs> same key different songs <laughs> trying to figure out what song we want to land on is what's keeping this going eight years now don't know what song more, no, it's definitely been more than eight years well eight well <sighs> of the years eight have been good hi everybody welcome to july we're in july now yeah july 1st it's hot oh boy it will be it, right now when we're recording it's it still it will be it will be there was a thing, I, well, I, I'm not going to post it because they don't care. There's a ghost! Greg Hi. thinks there's a ghost in the room because, well, I think it too. There was a, there's a <laughs> <laughs> That idiot thinks there's a ghost here. So do I, but... <laughs> For some reason, it makes a lot more sense when I think about it. <laughs> There's a thing like a pull string hanging, yeah. and all of a sudden, it started swinging really Real hard, hard yeah. and none of us were near it. Well, none of us. None of us. <gasps> Why'd I say that? Oh, no. Who else is in the room? <laughs> Tell them what you thought. I thought that you had just gotten up and moved it, but, but you were sitting there the whole time. <laughs> talking like, to me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, clearly in my mind, I remembered you like moving <laughs> it. So something, I don't know what's going it on. It must have happened in a different timeline. We've all seen Endgame, right? About three minutes in, Endgame has already been brought up. Hey, I got it. Disney owns us now. Do you not know that? Oh, no. We're owned by Disney. Oh, no, because we used to be owned by Sony. <laughs> now we're going to get good. Like I said, it's July. It's probably hot by this point. I don't know. I really hope it, I hope we I mean, can stay cold long enough that we like we trick summer. Yeah. And it's our and then it's like December. And it's like, well, I can't be hot now. And it's, it's going to be being cold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just stay cold before the devil knows it's hot <laughs> or at least supposed to be. How's it going? So you want to get into what we've You're done? Skip my question. No. Oh, what did you ask me? How's it going? <laughs> oh. I thought a ghost was talking. <laughs> I'm about to tell you how's it going. How's it going? This has been my last month. Not this isn't my last month. <laughs> <On Earth>. <laughs> I'm going to die soon. But July 1st, I won't be here anymore. <laughs> what if I'm not? You'll feel Imagine. pretty bad for laughing at that. <laughs> 
I mean, in front of everybody, yeah. The funeral, man, I'm going to be like... Snickering. Snickering. But behind like, the casket. They're going to ask me to give a speech at your funeral because your parents will find out, find out that you do comedy in the podcast. So they'll be like, you have to go talk. But I'm going to talk way back here and ask them to bring you back from the dead. Yeah. you like, talk on that mic! You're wobbling the microphone! He has risen. Yeah, and I've got some new cables to try out. Yeah, So that's how my that was my funeral. And now, what did you do in the past month? I finally did it. Stop looking in the corner because there's already a ghost string that i'm looking at there look and you at keep you looking and i can't look outside the door like i usually do i finally did it i got over my fears right. and i went on angel's flight oh yeah that's true you did time. go on angel's flight yeah, yeah. did you did true. you die last month also you haven't heard about it yet it's a different <laughs> we timeline bo- yeah. we both tom sawyer at each other's funeral <laughs> what are they saying about you i don't know let me say <laughs> let me go back to my funeral i was watching In my yours. timeline yeah yeah it's uh, you know obviously short ride but it's very nice you're standing at the bottom and you're like okay i get it and you're standing atop and you're looking down like okay i get it and then you're on on the actual it's not a flight you're actually the, in the, 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 on the actual box. angel yeah you're who i saw when i was dead anyways when you're on the ride it's so steep yeah. like when well, you're, that's why it's there exactly because and it's too because steep. it's too steep and poor working class it's people sweet. didn't want to walk up that stupid hill when i was riding it i realized the, how steep the slope was and i started to get nervous splash mountain style <laughs> nervous of like this is just gonna where's let the, go when's the drop <laughs> <laughs> oh no i hear banjos i'm in trouble somebody <laughs> what somebody what what <laughs> grand central market is the uh, the laughing place the laughing or whatever place, they yeah. call <laughs> it. <Yeah. laughs> we charge you a lot of money for a coffee. <laughs> my oh my. my oh what my. a wonderful price. <laughs> I'll give you everyone advice that I didn't have because you didn't tell me. Nobody told me that you don't have to walk to the top to buy a ticket. You can get on at the bottom and when you get at the top, yeah, pay for you can, your ticket. Yeah. Oh, so you knew that and you didn't tell me. Yeah. Uh, well, I, th- I, I mean, I've, look at you. <laughs> you need the walk that funeral did you know favors um, <laughs> usually people lose weight when they die how does this happen okay so here's my experience I realized why it was needed and then I experienced yeah. it down and then I'm like okay I'm done because I'm not going to go back you up took it, you took it the way that nobody needed it for <laughs> it's a steep walk yeah. I mean even just walking down is but I like I enjoyed it I, jo- I enjoyed yeah, it's a the nice little ride artifact it is a weird thing like yeah. it's I can't think of many things around you know, I've, I've seen so many I've, I've been <laughs> I've lived everywhere so many I, years. Have, I have lived so hard <laughs> I can't think of many attractions and other places where it's like our, this is a historic thing it's going to take you 20 feet up there yeah, exactly. and it's going to cost you like i can't i can't think of many things that are like that really San that are, th- it's, had it's, the it's, thing too that was like didn't it go like well, the, the, parking the, lot? the car thing yeah yeah i get well that's gone now but yeah i get but that even kind of uh this that, serves that, a purpose too but it i guess la's known that, for unnecessary yeah. novelty trips i've gone to a lot of mining towns where we rode a stupid train back and forth and been like oh old timey but then like angel <laughs> fight is so specifically in LA it's like thing. a 40 second ride yeah, it's a 40 second ride that you pay like 50 cents for it. so my thing of the month it's a book it's, it's a called book. the bible <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm gonna read all of it right now so it's called wild la explore the amazing nature in and around los angeles by lila higgins and gregory b Pauly and jason g goldman and charles hood uh-huh. put out by the natural history museum it just came out it's basically just a guide to the wildlife and nature of los angeles oh, wow. so okay. it'll go section by section of like mammals lizards birds celebrities crustaceans uh, uh, cephalopods <laughs> and then it'll give you suggested hikes varying hardness um uh, varying hardness oh i get it <laughs> of the city of like oh you can go you can walk through the sepulveda basin oh, okay. and you'll see this this and this That's is what neat. you'll see and it'll give you facts about it's fun to learn about the animals that you see every day and the plants and the trees yeah. and the cephalopods that when you see every day when we were uh doing nature episode that we did a couple episodes yeah. ago i was very interested in that stuff and i, I, I like that we, not anymore though this will get you even more in that mood because yeah. I, I i learned so much about opossums and like what? they're the, i think they're the only marsupial 
in North America, like native to North America, oh, really? and their babies are they have pouches, yeah. so they have like these jelly bean sized babies who have to like crawl into their mom's pouch when they're born. It's pretty cute. <laughs> but then like lizards, you know, like the common lizards that you see. Like I learned why they're always doing push ups. Always getting ready for summer. Those guys. Yeah, just learning about birds, the morning doves, and oh, they cool. like are terrible at laying their eggs. We should go bird watching. Oh my god, I'd love. I'd that. love to go birding with you. We call it birding. <laughs> Never mind. Oh. Oh. oh geez, I did it again. I lost another. One. <laughs> I always come off too eager. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Oh. Yeah, it's rattlesnake sneezing up at Brand Library right now. Ooh, oh my God. <laughs> That's my sad morning dove sound. Read the book. If they're listening to this, buy it. If they're not listening to it, save some money and get it at the library. I don't want to read it. I actually want you to read it. And then I just follow you around. Well, that was, uh, as I was reading it, I, I had every 10 minutes a new animal fact to tell <laughs> Melissa. Like, did you know that hummingbirds? This is probably a book for kids. No, 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 Greg. <laughs> this might be sure, a book there for- are pictures. <laughs> sure, <laughs> it makes sounds. If I sure, press you can right. take it in the bathtub. <laughs> it is not for kids. It's pretty... I mean, it's for everybody. Like, it's made in a digestible way, but it's for... What, is Toy Story just for kids now? <laughs> what, 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 Pokemon Adventures now just for kids? I can make a lot of money on those cards. It's presented like a kid could read it. Like, yeah. if you want to do your... For all the kids listening, if you want to do your research paper and use that as a source, it'll be very easy because there's pictures and... Uh, <laughs> No words. <laughs> you press a button and it makes the it sound makes of the sense. jacaranda tree. Ooh, doves. It's for adults and kids and everything in between. <laughs> but it has a lot of good information that is easy to digest. Okay. How dare you? I'm not making fun <laughs> of it, really. I'm, I mean, it's kind of like how the Natural History Museum is, where it's like, yeah, a lot of kids are there, but it's a Natural they, History they Museum. Are, they have to make it. Li- they're not lying. They're not lying. <laughs> Trust me. I submitted the whole thing to uh, plagiarize.com. Yeah. But yeah, it's a it's a good book. So cool. it's, oh. It's also called the Bible. So <laughs> let's talk about this month's episode, okay. July. So coming out this month, there's a movie. It's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm very excited. It's made by Quentin Tarantino. It's got yeah. the handsome. Brad I can't Pitt wait who to see a me. bunch of people's feet in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Those Roman Polanski's feet. That's all it's allowed in this country. Close of his. up of Sharon Tate's feet as they pan over 108 stab wounds or whatever. God, uh, hey, I would not put it past him. We wanted to try to connect this episode to that movie coming out because a lot of people are going to be interested because it takes place in 1969. Yeah. Los Angeles, the Hollywood scene, the Manson murders. We don't know exactly because the movie's not out. Yeah. And we were trying to think of a way to do it because we, we've done the Manson. We've mm-hmm. pretty much done Manson and we don't know anything else about the movie. <laughs> so we were thinking of doing something on the Sunset Strip. But it, that's it, more music. At that time, it yeah. was more music related, which is not this movie. Yeah. And then also Echo in the Canyon just came out and we can't just we can't just copy Jacob Dylan. We can- <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple Dylans we can copy, not Jacob. Not J- we took a vow yeah. when we started this podcast we're never going to copy Jacob <laughs> Dylan we put our hands on one headlight <laughs> and we swore never to do that the movie seems to be dealing with a washed up actor in 1969 because yeah. that as we kind of looked into it was a pretty pivotal year not just for Los Angeles with the Manson and all that but it was a big year for Hollywood. The end of the 60s. Well, they they always say that 70s starts in 1968, the feeling <laughs> of the 70s. And yeah, it, it's like good. a complete different culture. Like the, the youth culture just and counterculture swept yes. over everything. And there was the, the beginning of the new Hollywood yes. with the movie... Easy Rider. Easy Rider, which came out in 1969, and that was sort of the new... That along with Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, the three of them yeah. really packed but the, Was that 69 or was that a little bit... All, okay. I think they were all 69. Oh, I'm sure they were. <laughs> Speaking of The Graduate, <laughs> Mr. Podcast, you're trying to seduce me. Hubba. They weren't the only... I'm not done. Hubba. 
<laughs> they weren't the only independent movies that were popular. They were the most successful, and they completely changed how studios were looking. Yes, at but Easy Rider in particular kind of was that was the movie where people were like, "What is this?" Yeah. Like it was like the Jack Kerouac of movies. Almost. It really was because Bonnie and Clyde and Graduate seemed to have a plot, and Easy yeah. Rider doesn't really no. have one. The plot is that Jack Nicholson's going to show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what we wanted to do is talk about the two Hollywood systems and how it changed over, and we wanted to there was the old that. studio yeah. system, and then there was this new sort of independent almost auteur yeah. driven to, and we to wanted to um, encapsulate that whole movement in the career of one person so I'm doing new Hollywood that seemed to be led by Roger Corman and I'm going to do old Hollywood which is going to be encapsulated by Judy Garland 1969 was the year Judy Garland died 1969 is the year Easy Rider and those other movies that I've never heard of <laughs> uh, come out so it was it was almost it was a passing of the torch yeah. even though she was in no condition to be near an open flame <laughs> yeah it was kind of a pivotal year and we're going to kind of pivot. I'll be leading up to it. You'll be... Okay. Yeah. So let's get into Why it. Why I say okay like I didn't know? That's what we've been talking about. Like <laughs> okay, months. I'll start the research now. <laughs> Can you give me like an hour? I knew that's how long you researched for. <laughs> Man, you're going to love what Wikipedia wrote about this. <laughs> you're going to love what that kid's book from the Natural History Museum had to... There was a whole chapter on Judy Garland. <laughs> this is the sound Judy Garland makes. <laughs> you're mean. Pretty funny guy. She has a beautiful voice. <laughs> Okay, so let's get it started with Judy because this is a long one. Okay. And we've already took way too long. We're off to see the history. Oh my God. The history that's wonderful and odd. I hate this. It's going to be a lot of singing. You can't, <laughs> you, can't expect me, you can't expect me to do research on the icon of cabaret I pop am, vaudeville music. I imagine you are three different things. Sitting at a piano and your notes are right there and you're like just banging piano keys and you're just like Judy, Judy. And your poor, poor fiance comes out and rubs. She's like, it's three in the morning. Like, I gotta crack this. Judy. Judy. <laughs> Go ahead. So, <laughs> Judy Garland, ever heard of her? She was one of the major movie stars of the golden age of the Hollywood studio system, and maybe the last of these great movie stars. Yeah. But just like the studio system that created her, underneath that sheen and razzle-dazzle was something that many would consider to be the saddest thing you've ever heard that probably had to end. Some old... Dazzle-razzle for anybody. <laughs> there was a rotten core to old Hollywood, yeah. and nobody really embodied that better than Judy Garland. It was the worst-kept secret, and then it was no secret. So to show just how strong these two sides of Judy and Hollywood, don't forget the metaphor, were, and how interconnected to each other they were, I'm going to first give the straight history of Judy Garland and all her achievements, then we're going to go back and see what was going on beneath all of that. Okay, I didn't do that. You didn't do your Judy Garland part of the story? <laughs> Francis Ethel Gum. That's her name. Really? She was born June 10th, 1922 in Grand Rapids, Minnesota to Francis Avent and Ethel Milna Gum, two people who took the idea that their kids get half from each parent way too literally and <laughs> named them after both of them. They couldn't even give her the Ethel, the feminine first name. They yeah. changed the masculine into feminine. And, and then it they all starts, and the trauma starts there. <laughs> we'll get to it. Uh, her parents had been vaudeville performers who performed under the stage names Jack and Virginia Lee. But by the time Francis was born, they were settled into Grand Rapids with her dad running a local movie theater the new grand that the two would also they also performed in it so they own it and they perform there yeah they showed movies there and they were like well yeah stick around for the real show yeah <laughs> they just strip and strip <laughs> and strip this led to her very first brush with show business show business when her parents had an amateur night at the theater on December 26 1924 when Judy or Francis Ethel gum was two years old and she performed a tap number with her sisters Virginia and Mary Jane and then she came out solo and sang jingle bells oh, okay. and people thought 
thought it was so cute and gave her a big round of applause, which she loved so much. She stood there and sang it six more times before her dad had to physically pull her off the stage. Listen, I get it. Right We've there all been you. there. We've all been there. The, I get it. <laughs> the sweet sound of applause. I'll sing any Christmas song for that. But little Frances was hooked and decided on the feeling that she held on to for the rest of her life, which was that nothing was more exciting than the sound of clapping hands. Just a month later, she ran back on stage during another amateur night, this time not part of the show, and she sang Jingle Bells again. Wow. <laughs> get over it, Judy. <laughs> this carried on to her adult life where she kept <laughs> singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. <laughs> this was the beginning of a touring act of Frances and her two sisters that they called the Gum Sisters. Okay, that's pretty cute. Or when they were performing with their parents, it was Jack and Virginia Lee and Three Kitties, or Jack and Virginia Lee with the Three Little Lees, or just the Gum Family. I Judy. wouldn't watch any of them, but okay. <laughs> you wouldn't go see the little Gum Lilies or <laughs> gum whatever? Kitties. As Frances started to get a little older, it started becoming clear who the real talent was in the family. Not only was she a cute little baby, they called her Baby Gum, but everyone noticed how incredible her voice was for someone her age and really anybody's age. She had a really, really good voice. Mm -hmm. Her mom referred to her as the little girl with the leather lungs. <laughs> she had the singing voice of a grown woman in the body of a little girl. They must have been like, that's money. She's singing money right now. You hear that? <laughs> that's the sound of my bank account growing. Clang, 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 said the cash machine. There's no cash machine. Uh, <laughs> clang, 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 said the Venmo. <laughs> what does that mean? Her voice, it was filled with sadness and weight. Someone who saw her sing when she was 11 years old said that she, that's a good warm up. Someone who saw her sing when she was 11 years old said that she sang like a woman three times her age with a broken heart. Little Billie Holiday? Uh, on top of that, she had a photographic memory so oh. she could memorize songs in a broken heartbeat. So when it came time to move, for reasons we're going to get to later, the family decided to move out west mm -hmm. to try to get Francis and the Gum Sisters involved in the just starting movie business that yeah. was growing in Los Angeles. In November 1926, the family relocated to 3154 Glen Manor Place in Atwater. And the house is still there. And the sisters started performing around town at places like the Biltmore and the Shrine Auditorium and the Lowe's State Theater on Broadway. Oh, cool. They were in the 100 Clever Children in the Twinkle Toe Kitty Review. <laughs> Their mom enrolled them in Ethel Meglin's Child Dance School, which was called the Meglin Kitties. Everything was the kitties. It was all kitties yeah, back that's then. They sell tickets. They put them in that school to hone their skills. Their mom played the piano in the school to earn money, but their dad was having trouble finding work. So in March 1927, he was forced to move his family to Lancaster at Ooh. 1207 Cedar Street and bought a movie theater there called yeah. the Valley Theater. He also bought a meth lab. <laughs> clang, clang, clang went my teeth falling out. But the performing continued. Side note, oftentimes in blackface. But oh. uh, hey, hey, I guess it was the 20s. <laughs> Imagine Judy Garland in blackface. As a little girl. How horrible. Yeah, that They were driven the six hours round trip from Lancaster to perform in the more civilized parts of the city. And they started playing bigger and bigger places. They played at the Ebel, the Chinese theater, oh, wow. the Coconut Grove. Oh, Coconut Grover down on Poi Street. <laughs> <laughs> Between 1924 and 1935, they had done hundreds of performances on both radio and vaudeville. In 1934, they performed at the Chicago World's Fair where their name was misspelled as the Glum Sisters <laughs> and a comedian performing there named George Jessel he pointed out to them that uh, maybe gum isn't the best name to use on stage because it rhymes gl gum, gum dumb it's too easy so the sisters decided to make it something more catchy now there's different stories of where the name came from so it was either a name given to them by Jessel after a drama critic in New York or it was the maiden name of their mom but for now on the sisters were known as the Garland Sisters Okay. and 12 year old Francis wanted a new first name also so she picked the name Frankie. she picked she went by the name we all know her for <laughs> stogie garland so she picked the title of a hoagie carmichael song that she liked and she was now known as judy garland 
That's it. That's her name. That's her fake Origin name. Story. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, and then she was bitten by a radioactive <laughs> song. Back in LA, the family bounced back to the main part of the city, living at 2605 Ivanhoe Drive in Los Feliz, mm-hmm. then 2671 Lakeview Terrace East, also in Los Feliz, not in Lakeview Terrace, which confused me, then 842 North Mariposa Avenue in East Hollywood, then to 180 South McCadden Place in Hancock Park. And this new money was coming from their higher profile performances right. and the movie appearances that started to trickle in for the sisters. So their first appearance was 1929's The Big Review, where they sang, that's the good old sunny South. I can only imagine what color their skin was painted uh, in that one. Huh? Oh, boy. Ooh, boy. Ooh, uh, ooh, ooh. Someone delete that from the memory. <laughs> the sisters had a few more song and dance numbers in a few more movies, but pretty soon the older sisters met boys and they got married and they planned on retiring from the group, which would just leave Judy. But that was fine because she was the main reason they she were was, popular. She was Michael Jackson of the Jackson 5. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, there were a couple that were okay. okay. Which also, don't compare abused. her to Michael. Let's not compare her to Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> mm, similar backstory, though. In fall of 1935, the sisters had performed at the Orpheum Ooh, the big one. downtown and a scout for MGM had been in the audience and reported back to Louis B. Meyer of the incredible talent he had seen. She was only 13 years old yeah. at the time and a few days later she was contacted to come in for an audition with Meyer personally on wow. October 1st. He didn't have her act or do a screen test. He just wanted to hear her sing and just off her singing he signed her to a seven year contract oh with MGM God. to make $100 a week which is close to $2,000 in today's. Ludicrous. For a 13 year old. For a 13 year old who wears blackface willingly. <laughs> Uh, on the street, not even performing. So now Judy was officially a part of the Hollywood studio machine. So okay. she's in. Good luck. Yeah. Godspeed, Judy Garland. <laughs> they gave her voice and dance lessons to develop her talents further and put her in studio school with MGM's other child stars like Lana Turner, Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor, and Mickey Rooney. Oh boy. Became her closest friend, Mickey uh, Rooney. My personal Your enemy. Your closest friend. <laughs> my mortal enemy who's been dead for some years now, who is a, like a <laughs> who, century older than who's me. Who's still winning the battle. <laughs> the one who was washed up before I was even born. So all this was happening on the MGM lot in Culver City, which is now Sony, who used to own us. But it wasn't just an education they were giving her. She was an MGM asset and they wanted to use her. Yeah, Yeah, she was goods. The first movie they put her in was Pigskin Parade in 1936, which starred, strangely, Jack Haley, who would go on to be the Tin Man. And the rest is not yet history. (laughs) It wasn't a big part and nobody really noticed her because they didn't know how to use the talents of Judy Garland yet. Then on February 1st, 1937, she was at the big MGM birthday party for another good friend of yours, Clark Gable. Great. So this is the old Hollywood, huh? You can kill one person tonight (laughs) and we'll forgive it as we always do. So at this birthday- We'll get Eddie Maddox to take care of it. Don't worry. He's (laughs) He's coming up later. Really? They had her at this party sing a parody of uh, Beat It. Girlfriend? (laughs) And you're obviously related to this woman who sang a parody at a Hollywood party. So I went to Steven Spielberg's (laughs) birthday party and I sang a parody of Adele's... What is her popular song? Rolling in the Deep, but it was about Jaws. (laughs) So what? So sue me. And they tried. It was a a parody of the song, You Made Me Love You. And she called it, Dear Mr. Gable, You Made Me Love You. Oh boy. (laughs) Now that's pretty desperate. They made her do it. And the the people... Okay, that's just as bad. It's desperate on their part. (laughs) It's sad on hers. The people at the party loved it so much that they made a point to have her sing it in the... The 1938 movie Broadway Melody, where it then became apparent, it was a, like everyone's like, "Oh, can you believe this song?" Yeah. It became apparent that this girl, she was going to be a star, and yeah. she was going to be a star soon, and she was. They just didn't know how. Still, they didn't know what to do with Make her. Make her sing! <laughs> but, Why are you not getting this? <laughs> what can she do? <laughs> can we try another silent movie with her? <laughs> she had performed in a short with a girl named Deanna Durbin, and it was really popular. But MGM had just let Durbin's contract run out before it was released, and it came out and like, "Oh my God, Deanna Durbin!" So she got snatched 
snatched up by Universal and became a big star for them. So the MGM was determined we're not going to let this slip through our fingers yeah. like the Durbin the, situation. Durbin girl, yeah. So Meyer made it his personal project to make Judy a star. So they paired her with Mickey Rooney. <laughs> Guaranteed star maker, Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney. Captain Defiler, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> the first Avenger, Captain Defiler, a.k.a. Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney. They put her as his best friend to the main character that was Mickey Rooney, yeah. a.k.a. the Great Defiler. What's the movie called? It was a series of movies. It was Andy something. Yeah, like, Andy Hardy Andy movies. Andy Hardy, yeah. They did a bunch of them, they, and they were all hits. They ended up doing nine of these movies together. But then the big one came along. MGM was making a movie of The Wizard of Oz, and they needed a little girl who could sing. Okay. Who can we use? <laughs> Shirley Temple. No. Well, the first impulse was Shirley Temple. Really? They wanted, they wanted her because she was the little girl, and yeah. they could borrow her from Fox. But they had a secret weapon in-house. They had Judy Garland, but yeah. the problem was Judy was 16, and Dorothy's supposed to be like eight. Yeah. She's supposed to be Shirley Temple age. She was a little too old, but they figured Judy Garland's four foot 11. Shirley Temple can't sing anywhere near. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Put her in pigtails. So they just, they figure, go with Judy. Let's figure out how to make it work. More on that later. When I say that, I'm letting you know that something sad's going to happen later. <laughs> Put a bookmark here. You're going to be sad later. Yeah. What's more is that Judy had an ability to transition from talking to singing in a musical without it being jarring or oh, unnatural, wow. like that, when I do it. Like when I do it! Like, like when I don't. Uh, <laughs> that's why judy was good it takes a lot it's not something a lot of people can do i could do it pretty well <laughs> this was the point where you say the rest is history but this is a history podcast so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few hours so the wizard of oz came out and while judy singing over the rainbow became what most people remember the movie itself didn't become what it how it is now yeah. until years later so it wasn't a huge hit and the song was actually almost cut from the movie wow. because they felt it made the kansas part of the movie too long and that it was degrading to make her sing in a barnyard <laughs> She lived in Lancaster. She knows degrading. We don't want it to seem degrading. Give her more pills. More on that later. Bookmark um, <laughs> that guy. However, a couple months later, she starred in the Busby Berkeley movie, Babes in Arms, with her and Mickey Rooney. Yeah. And that shot her up. That was like, now she's a movie star. This was the big hit. She got bigger and bigger doing more of these song and dance movies with Mickey Rooney. She was being called MGM's greatest asset, Miss Show Business, and the world's greatest entertainer. In October 1939, she got her handprints at the Chinese Theater. Mm -hmm. She had her own house designed for her. Her at 1231 Stone Canyon Road in Bel Air by the mom of the guy who played Perry White in the original Superman. Really? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Even though she didn't get nominated for an Oscar for being Dorothy or for her role in Babes in Arms, she was given a special one-time-only Oscar on February 29, 1944, Outstanding Performance as a Screen Juvenile during the past year, which was pretty much just an apology for not nominating her and just praising her for being a good gal. Yeah, thanks for showing up on time. The award for showing up on time goes to Judy Garland. <laughs> Most punctual actress. <laughs> under the age of 17. <laughs> so she was now making $150,000 a movie, which today is $3 million. Cool. All of this by the age of 17 years old. But first comes movie success, and then comes marriage, and then comes four more marriages. Oh, no, Judy. Uh, Judy, 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 Judy. On, on her 18th birthday, she wasted no time and got engaged to a band leader named David Rose, who was 30 years old. Oh. The two ran off to Las Vegas and got married July 28th, 1941. They briefly lived at 4020 Longridge Drive in Sherman Oaks. Oh, okay. Which is right near me, and I walked to it the other day. Did you? Yeah. There were other people parked there, but I think they were just waiting for somebody. I was like, can you believe it's Judy yeah. Garland? Judy Garland <laughs> lives here for a few weeks. Were you holding a radio above your head and playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and then the cops came? The copyright police came? <laughs> uh, for two counts. <laughs> we don't even know what one we're here for. We just assume that you're going to come with us. Her new husband was a train lover, so the house had a big model train called the Gar Rose Railroad. I thought you said trained lover, and I thought 
Oh, no. He's a gigolo. <laughs> Her professional lover. <laughs> but from there, the commute to MGM was too long for Judy, so they moved to 10693 Chalon Road in Bel Air, which isn't really much of a improvement commute-wise. I mean, that's what? You're like Where 20 it? feet closer. Where was MGM? Culver City. Oh. So it's a difference between Sherman Oaks to Culver City and so, Bel Air to Culver. That's like nothing. That's, what are you doing, Judy? You're riding the same hill, lady. This marriage didn't last too long, and the two were divorced on June 8th, 1944. Is that D-Day? No, D- I, D-Day was like a year oh, before. Oh, I'm thinking of Pearl Harbor Day. I, I don't know when D-Day well, was. Pearl Harbor. It might no, Pearl Harbor's December. We were told to never forget, but no! <laughs> I remember 9-11. Why didn't they call it something <laughs> easier? Why couldn't D-Day be June 8th Day? D-Day, Dorothy Day. <laughs> this was where Judy's career entered a whole new level after this divorce. After this divorce. By the time she was already one of, if not the brightest star in Hollywood, and she stayed at that level for the rest of the 40s. Like she was the queen of the 1940s Hollywood, yeah. especially after another iconic role in Meet Me in St. Louis in 1945, mm-hmm. clang, clang, clang with the trolley, yeah. where she was the first person to also ever sing have yourself a merry little christmas really i did not know that i did not know that (laughs) but now she was also transitioning into non-singing roles the first of these was the clock in 1945 but back on the set of meet me in st louis she had wanted to get another crack on a role she had played before being somebody's wife she had fallen in love with the director of that movie who had also done an american in paris madame bovary and the original father of the bride his name was vincente minnelli the two were married june 15th 1945 was that the day hitler killed himself (laughs) louis b meyer himself walked judy down the aisle. Wow. I give you my greatest asset. I, I give you my greatest piece of property. And a herd of munchkins. <laughs> the two lived at 8850 Evanview Drive in the Hollywood Hills, but they also owned a place in Malibu at 19236 Pacific Coast Highway. And they eventually had a girl together named Liza. Oh. The one from Arrested Development. Does she get famous? Mm. More on that later. It's, it's funny that we know this famous actress from being in Arrested Development, I know. which is like the later years I, of and I, and I always thought of like, what is the daughter of Judy Garland doing on Arrested <laughs> Development? But then the more I read about Judy Garland and like that makes sense she's this is her element <laughs> this is her element being attacked by an ostrich par for she's, the Manelli family but she's great in that show she is very good so during this time as well she got back to her vaudeville roots and started performing solo concerts just of her song so she had so many songs that she was known for at that this she point. could just go on the yeah boat. exactly and there's also other songs the first of these had been in July 1943 at Robin Hood Dell in Philadelphia which had 15,000 people in attendance with another 15,000 who got turned away at the Whoa. door so during this time she also became the first celebrity to entertain troops during World War II. Was she really? Yeah, when all the other entertainers had to be turned into bullets. <laughs> sorry, Marilyn, we gotta do it. Bob Hope. Buff, sorry. You're made out of a lot of <laughs> copper. Because of this, she became the first woman to be named an honorary corporal, so suck it, Bob Hope, again. <laughs> That's twice in one sentence that you had to suck it. However, as the 40s came to an end, so did her roles in movies. Again, We'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Also ending was her marriage to Manelli on March 29th, 1951. Is that the day that uh, Emma <laughs> Kemmer was hanged in Nuremberg? And so begins the first of her many career comebacks. Shortly after her marriage ended, she moved to London and decided to bounce her career back, not with movies, but with live shows. So on April 10th, is that the year that <laughs> 10 days before Hitler was born? <laughs> April 10th, 1951, she started her comeback tour at the Palladium in London. And when she walked on stage, she literally fell flat on her face. No. <laughs> but people in the crowd shouted to her, go on, Judy, we love you. And she got up and blew everybody away and R- continued. Like Rocky. Yeah. She All became a boxer. And this was her big comeback. <laughs> That's really sad. But she she got up and did she it. Also, she also, she's not like you think of Judy Garland, like, oh, poor Dorothy. Like yeah. Judy Garland had a really good sense of humor. And she yeah. was like, she was a tough lady. Like yeah. she falling on her face. She's going to make that really funny. 
funny. I was listening to one of her albums, which we're going to talk about at Carnegie Hall, yeah. and like she's almost doing stand up in between her, really? and it's like pretty funny. She's like she, they're more like st- funny stories okay. that don't really go anywhere, but like she tells them in a good way, and yeah. she's pretty funny. I'm sure she made this the greatest moment in showbiz yeah. history. So it was a great show, and she did that night after night after night after night, and her show was a smash hit, and just like that, she was she was Back. on top. She yeah. was the queen. So helping her manage this new part of her career was a test pilot for Douglas Aircraft turned agent turned producer named Sidney Luft. After the success of her London shows, they decided to take the show to New York City, but when she got there, they found out no one's interested. (laughs) So she already was back down. But... Luff decided to put on the show anyway, so he rented out the Palace Theater and polished it back up to its vaudeville glory, and they put the shows on themselves, and this led to a hugely popular 19-week run where she did 184 shows, which set a New York vaudeville record and earned her a special Tony Award for helping the revival of vaudeville, which never actually happened. It didn't revive, but... (laughs) Thanks for performing CPR and vaudeville. (laughs) Best needle from Pulp Fiction into the heart of vaudeville. She doesn't get actual Tonys or actual... She gets like these special one-time off, because she was that like everyone wanted to honor her but like they keep screwing up when they could have done it yeah so from here she took the show back to la where she performed at the la philharmonic but what she set to work on was her triumphant return to movies with her passion project which was a remake of a star is born her other passion project was sydney left who she married on june oh, 8th i figured that that was coming june 8th was that oh is that the day that uh, i <laughs> is forgot that the day that the cold war <laughs> <laughs> is that the day that i read about all the dates is that the day that we started making this joke <laughs> june 8th 1952 married sydney left the two moved in together at 144 south mapleton drive in holmby hills and then later at 129 south rockingham avenue in brentwood they had two kids lorna and joey a star is born came out september 29th is that the day that the star is born came out september 29 1954 and it got it had been tinkered with beyond repair by the studios so it wasn't a big hit when it came out as big as she was hoping but it did earn her an oscar nomination which she did not win so at least she got nominated yeah it's a it's an honor to lose (laughs) because it was official it wasn't like a special thing that I'd rather lose an official Oscar than be given a fake one. <laughs> the fake one she got from the souvenir shop in Hol- on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> this one I could just pick up and grab. No one's stopping they me. They love me. <laughs> they really overcharged me. So then she turned her back again on movies and focused again on live shows and recording. In August 1955, she started a 10-year relationship with Capitol Records. During this time, she recorded 12 albums, which included a recording of her two-week engagement at the Coconut Grove at oh. the Ambassador Hotel in July 1958 and her April 1961 recording of her show at Carnegie Hall, which you listened to, which I just listened to, which many consider to be the greatest night of live entertainment ever. Do you agree? This is my greatest night. <laughs> it was the greatest two days of commute in Hollywood show business. It is a really good. I mean, her she has a really good voice. Yeah. It, it It is kind of like vaudeville sort of campy songs. But like I said, she's really funny and the songs are good. Okay. The second, because it's a two disc thing, the second half of the second disc is pretty much just applause. Like the show <laughs> ended and then and they played like an instrumental like somewhere over the rainbow yeah. and it's just people like more, more, oh more. God, and yeah. then like she'll come out and then she'll sing another song. They'll be like somewhere over the <laughs> rainbow and then like more, I want more and then she'll come out again and sing another song and then somewhere over the river there were like six encores and she's like i don't have any more songs like we don't have more arrangements i can't play that we don't need more arrangements just keep singing somewhere over the rainbow so that album won five grammys and it was on the charts for 95 weeks and in july 1956 she started performing in las vegas and became the highest paid performer there at the time so in may 1959 she became the first pop singer to perform at the metropolitan opera house in new york city she had a tv special in 1950 
1955 that broke the CBS viewership record. She did a one-woman show at the Hollywood Bowl in 1961 with 18,000 people sitting in the rain watching her sing complete with four encores in this one. And then the crowd was begging her again to sing another song. Like people went crazy for her. But she had one more. (laughs) Hey, this is funny. But she had one more movie comeback left in her. And that was the role of a Holocaust survivor in Judgment at Nuremberg. That's funny that we were bringing that up before. (laughs) Do you remember seeing her? Because you saw that recently, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know it's her. It is weird because I had never really seen older Judy Garland before and seen her like, what? Yeah. Dorothy, what happened to you? I've only seen the Holocaust. Wizard of Oz. And then we watched Ziegfeld Follies and she has a segment in there. I'm like, oh, she's really funny. She is. Well, not in Judgment at Nuremberg. (laughs) (laughs) She fell on her face. and Boy, was that funny. Eichmann fell on his face after they cut his rope down. No, she was really good in that. She okay. she earned another Oscar nomination okay. for that and also lost. Oh. As long as it's real. <laughs> they really appreciate me. They, <laughs> they really, really recognize me. <laughs> so after this, she turned back to the stage again. She had another successful run of shows in London. Then on February 25th, 1962, she did another special for CBS called The Judy Garland Show with guests like Frank Sinatra. Dean Martin broke her own CBS viewership record Damn. as the next highest rated yeah. thing in CBS history. That led to CBS offering her $24 million to do a weekly variety TV show the Judy Garland show the next year where she performed songs and comedy sketches but it couldn't compete with the ratings giant that was Bonanza so (laughs) it it only lasted a year so she gave movies another shot one last shot she did 1963's I Could Go On Singing that was her last movie ever but she went back to touring exclusively in places like Australia in 1965 some of her shows were even opened up by the Supremes oh wow that's been a good show that that sounds great that would be incredible they all fall on their faces all of them protecting Richard Nick what president was it Linda B. Johnson are you suggesting that the Supremes took a bullet for Lyndon B. Johnson? Wasn't there uh, like a march gone bad in like, Century bad City? Century City, And they were protecting Lyndon B. Johnson? There, and was the Supremes playing? That's a dream you had after you had too much Korean barbecue. <laughs> you know what? Never mind. I don't know. I, We've talked about it. We talked, about, talked about, about that. It. I don't remember the Supremes being... Well, you know, There was I, a I girl group. Do... There was a girl group that was protecting... Oh, you mean the Ronettes? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the I don't know what you're talking oh, about. You're, you're talking, talking about, about the Ronettes. Shangri-La's protecting Grover Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> he was the leader of the pack. The leader of the cabinet. You mean the time that the chiffons <laughs> took a bullet for Martin Van Buren. That was the day that that was June 8th, 1941. On May 19th, 1965, she decided it was time to move on to a new husband. So she divorced left and was briefly engaged to a man named Tom Green. <laughs> Just keep going. Let's just skip this joke. Uh, keep going. No, I don't think I can skip this. Ah, <clears throat> me, 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 me. My bum is on the rainbow. <laughs> I was really hoping to avoid that. You can't avoid really? the bum bum. After Tom Green, it was, that was just a brief engagement, a hot uh, fling, a hot weekend with Tom Green. Before she moved on to the Mark Heron part of her life, who was, he was in eight and a half. She married him in, on November 14th, 1965. He wasn't the star. He was yeah, just in eight and a half. And continued doing shows like she did an August 1967 concert on the Boston Com and for 108,000 people. So that's Judy Garland. Like she could do- (laughs) That's a lot of people. That's a lot of numbers. So that's basically how her career went for the rest of her life. She'd be hugely popular on stage, then kind of disappear again for reasons we're going to get back to. Then stage another comeback tour. She said that she'd made 185 comebacks up to now. (laughs) Funny gal. Funny. And then she fell on her face. (laughs) Get it? She divorced Heron on January 9th, 1969 and quickly remarried one more time to a disco promoter named Mickey Davinko on March 15th. The Ides of March. That was the day that Julius Caesar got killed. <laughs> 1969 and her, gave her final concert March 
1969 in Copenhagen and was living in London plotting yet another comeback tour when she was found dead on June 22nd, 1969 on her bathroom floor of an overdose of sleeping pills. She was 47 years old. Now that's jarring. If you don't know the rest of the story, I'm about to, if you don't know the Judy Garland story, if you haven't heard, you must remember this. A fantastic, wow. No, no, this one. uh, No, 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 no. no. They didn't talk about, did she talk about Hitler a lot? (laughs) For no reason. So if you don't know the Judy Garland story and you hear that she suddenly died of an over, of a pill overdose, that's shocking at at the age 47. That's pretty weird. Weird and wild, weird, wild stuff. Weird and wild. She had been in 32 movies. She'd done voice work on two more. She was in six shorts. She had done over 1,100 live performances, made about 250 radio appearances, performed all over the world. James Mason said at her funeral that her greatest gift was that she could wring tears out of hearts of rock. She was buried at Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York, up until 2017, actually, when she was moved to Hollywood forever. So oh, she's, she really? she's yeah, I, that's weird. The helicopter is. just like lowering a tomb. They carried the whole cemetery <laughs> and put it on top of. You listing all her credits, Mrs. Show Business. She was Miss. She Miss. Yeah. Miss, Miss show business. Miss show business. Excuse me. Five times divorced. <laughs> the widow guess, shows business. I guess death is kind of a divorce. Uh, it's the final divorce. She wanted to be in Hollywood forever. Well, she didn't want this. It yeah. was twenty. It was like fifty years after her death. But yeah. I think Liza and her kids—they wanted her to be there so she could be buried with Liza and the other kids and their yeah. grandkids because there was no room at the other one. So a quick side note is her connection to the gay community. We have to—you can't talk about Judy Garland without talking about this. Nobody's entirely sure why she became such an icon in the gay community. Supposedly, she was performing in a lot of gay bars in the mid. 60s might have been that she often performed in androgynous clothes or drag like suits or it might have been because of the issues she had which I'm about to get to Mm -hmm. with her own body and people's image of her but whatever it was she embraced her gay fans and she defended her gay fans she was vocally supportive of gay rights and publicly denounced people who were infringing on other people's rights in the name of religion and expected forgiveness for that just because they went to church every Sunday like she was pretty angry at people who hated gay people a code for letting people know you were gay was that you would tell people you were a friend of Dorothy like Dorothy from Wizard of Oz well, Judy Garland. You know, the woman we've been talking about. Oh! <laughs> they know each other? They know each other? Oh, you mean Shirley Temple. I've seen the original <laughs> yeah. cut. So people even believe that Judy's death directly led to the Stonewall riots, which happened the night of her funeral when a, when a lot of drag queens and gay men were mourning her and felt a little fed up, uh, more than a yeah. little fed up and inspired to stand up to the cops, which led to what happened. Wow. Or it could have just been a coincidence. Nobody really knows. But that a lot of people think that her yeah. funeral was what sort of pushed Put the gay community in. over the edge. Like, yeah. I, we're mourning here. Leave us alone. Yeah. You're not leaving us alone. We're rioting. Yeah, so it problems. makes sense. So that was the Hollywood version of the Judy Garland story. Okay. The glossy golden age narrative. What was really happening to Julie Garland was really horrible and indicative of a system that had to be brought down. That would just abuse people, spit them out, they're done. Let's go back to the very beginning and point out that her parents did not want her when they found out that they were pregnant. Oh, they boy. wanted to get an abortion and it wasn't until she was born and started singing that they saw her value. <laughs> not that you could go so far as to say they loved her. Her mom was a prime specimen of of a pushy stage mom and on top of that she was jealous of Judy because of the talent yeah. that she herself did not have that puts staying on stage for the applause under a whole new context which is the, really sad yeah that that's what I was going with. Yeah. I was trying to make you sad <laughs> yeah, it, planet, seat for <laughs> everything you're, you just heard you're going to see it all in a new light mm-hmm. if little Judy didn't feel good and didn't want to perform her mom would tell her you get out and sing or I'll wrap you around the bedpost and break you off short okay just like Michael Father Jackson Miley, Michael Father Jackson, Jackson. <laughs> Father Jackson. <laughs> on top of that at age 9 her mom started giving her pep pills 
pills, which were amphetamines to keep her energy up. In her defense, they didn't know back then just how harmful that was, but it still gave Judy a lifelong dependency on pills to be able to function. And the parents didn't love each other either. Most of all, because her mom was cheating on her dad and her dad was gay. Oh, okay. So it was a very dysfunctional. And by the way, men turning out to be gay in Judy's life is going to become the running gag of her. We'll get to that. Uh, More on that later. Um, (laughs) Bookmark that. That's the reason they had to leave Minnesota to begin with, because her dad was caught seducing underage male ushers that worked at his theater. So they had to get out of town. When she got picked up by MGM, things just got worse. They kept giving her more and more pills to keep up with the shooting schedule. Okay. They would make her work 72-hour shifts sometimes. (laughs) 72 hours in a day. Yeah. (laughs) They found a way. They shifted the space-time continuum (laughs) just so Judy Garland could make more movies. So they'd give her pep pills, cart her onto the set, not Jimmy Carter, cart her onto the set, then give her sleeping pills when it was over until they needed her again. And then give her pep basically pills. Basically to wake her up. Basically yeah. just turn her on. Her. She's a robot. Turn her on yeah. and off when you need her. Jeez. wasn't just her. There was all these kid stars. She said, that's the way we got mixed up. That's the way we lost contact. Wow. All of these kid stars, they all developed addictions. Lana Turner had to ask permission every five minutes in their school so she could go out to smoke cigarettes. It's a good life. What did her <laughs> daughter grow up instead? Johnny Stampanato? They put Judy in therapy to try to help her cope, but it didn't work. She later said, no wonder I was strange. Imagine whipping out of bed, dashing over to the doctor's office, lying down on a torn leather couch, telling my troubles to an old man who couldn't hear, who answered with an accent I couldn't understand, and then dashing to Metro to make movie love to Mickey Rooney. <laughs> pretty awful. That's a pretty bad day. That's the worst part of her whole story. Yeah. So she never got a childhood from the start. She was always being made to perform either by her mom or by MGM, who became her new mom. On top of that, her dad died three months after she got signed by MGM of spinal meningitis. At the time, she couldn't be by his side because she was on the Shell Chateau hour singing in a song called Zing Went the String of My Heart. That's what she was doing as her dad died. She wasn't particularly close to her dad because they were both always working, but she loved him, especially in comparison to her mom. She later said that his death was the worst thing that ever happened to her. She was 13 years old. She just started a really scary new career with a lot of pressure and her mom sucked. Like nobody was her dad. You're all alone. You're all, she was all alone. The only person even remotely looking out for her was her dad and now he's gone. So she didn't cry at his funeral and she couldn't cry for eight days later when she finally locked herself in a bathroom and cried for 14 hours. Wow. So that that was her uh, <laughs> that was her sweet sixteen. Now she was left with her mom, or as she referred to her, the real wicked witch of the West. <laughs> her mom even made a point to remarry a new guy on the fourth anniversary of her dad's death. Wow. Yep. Good mom. I got something for you. It's a new dad. <laughs> I know you missed the other one, but this one's younger and he's not gay this time. I have sex with this one. <laughs> Eventually, she got estranged from her mom and had to fight a legal battle with her until her mom finally died on January 5th, 1953. Yeah, Will you die already? <laughs> the court recognizes her death. And it is official. official. It must have been some sort of relief to her to have her mom out of the picture. But back at MGM, she was at the mercy of a very vain industry and she was a very sensitive girl, which was not a good mix. Nope. Oh, this is where it gets even everything just gets worse. After her first movie, the notes from the executives at MGM was that she looked like, quote, a fat little pig with pigtails. Oh, okay. Well, that's not friendly. That's not helpful to anybody. Yeah. First of all, cruelest thing anyone has ever said in their lives. Second of all, she was not fat at all. Like by no stretch. She just wasn't camera slim. Yeah. So the studio put this 14-year-old girl on a strict diet of cottage cheese, chicken broth, black coffee, diet pills every four hours, and 80 cigarettes a day. It sounds like if you make that in a bathtub, it'll explode. (laughs) This is a science experiment gone mad. This is like (laughs) the stuff they're cooking up in Lancaster. (laughs) The Lancaster diet, as they called it. Sorry to our Lancaster listeners. They don't have the internet. (laughs) They sometimes would take her food away from her even before she had eaten it if they thought she looked too fat that 
that day. Just because you're not Ava Gardner doesn't mean you... <laughs> Don't even bring up Ava Gardner to her. Here's where he comes back. They had Eddie Mannix keeping tabs on her outside the studio to make sure she wasn't eating. That guy's jobs range so... Clean, Clean up, up this body. murder scene. Make sure that Judy Garland doesn't have a milkshake. <laughs> make sure all the blood swept up from the Clark Gable thing and make sure she doesn't pick up too many bananas. Don't let her walk through that bakery. <laughs> At rehearsal, she'd tell a director that she couldn't go on because she was too hungry and he'd tell her, keep going and you won't feel hungry. Just keep working. Take these pills. Wow. There were memos between executives at the studio saying things like Judy snuck out between takes and had a malted milk. Garland gained 10 pounds. These were the discussions. Somebody had to ride a bicycle from office to office. And a courier? Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he had to be like, she had some Skittles. Like, what? Where's Eddie? One executive told her she was so fat she looked like a monster. To her face, she told her that. Not surprisingly, this gave her a lifelong eating disorder. Yeah. When asked later in life what she missed most during her teens, she said eating. <laughs> she also had scoliosis, so Meyer referred to her as his little hunchback, and she was constantly being compared look-wise to other young stars like Lana Turner, which gave her a serious complex. It didn't help that when she was 17, she was in a relationship with the musician Artie Shaw, oh, oh, yeah. whom she loved, but he left her for Lana Turner. Mm -hmm. It also didn't help that she fell for Mickey Rooney and he rejected her because he was into tall blondes, yeah. even though he is he is the little hunchback. He's the hunch. He's him. He's Andy Hardy. He it's can look him. like whatever he wants. The <laughs> he's man, a living ghoul. The man who looks like he should only have one giant tooth. <laughs> she hated that little girl with the leather lungs nickname her mom gave her. She later said she would rather have been called pretty or yeah. nice. That's what she wanted to hear. She didn't want to hear, oh, she's got the lungs of an old yeah. buffalo. <laughs> to deal with her looking older than they wanted for the part of Dorothy and them feeling that she was so unmanageably fat. They put her in a corset. They put caps on her teeth. They taped down her breasts. They put stuff in her nose to reshape it. That checkered design on her dress was specifically made to create a blurring effect to make her look younger and slimmer. Then, of course, there were the creeps. There were a lot of studio men hitting on her starting from age 16 with a lot of Weinstein-like stories that yeah. are circulating. Supposedly, some of the munchkins on set sexually harassed her, but most people deny that happened. Who, the it, munchkins deny that happened? <laughs> of course, the, mu okay. the munchkins will never cop to anything except cop a feel. Judy Garland said that that never happened, but okay. you know, some people say it did. I don't know. Who did sexually harass her for sure was Louis B. Meyer, mm -hmm. who on several occasions would tell her she should sing from the heart as he grabbed her breast. Wow, okay. Eventually, the guy who walked her down the aisle? Yep. And her... uh, holding her by the breast. Yeah. Eventually she stood up to him and told him to stop doing that, to which he responded to by crying. <laughs> Idiot. She later said, I'm lucky I didn't sing from another part of my anatomy. She had a pretty good sense of humor for all the horror she's been through. She grew up entirely in the public eye and she felt that her mom and MGM stole her childhood from her and that put her on a really bad path for the rest of her life. When she wanted to stop being a kid and to start being seen as a woman, the studio wouldn't let her. Yeah. The studio initially objected to her marriage to David Rose, her first one, because they wanted her to be seen in the public eye as a little girl. <gasps> also, Rose was married to another woman at the time, so they had to wait a year. But when they finally did get married, they soon got pregnant. But her mom and MGM didn't want her to seem too motherly, which they felt would ruin her career, so they made her get an abortion. She's like a product. Oh. She's an asset. Well, she's an asset. She's, ooh, MGM's not ready to have a baby yet. Yeah, like. It's not a good time for us at MGM. <laughs> this was a common practice that the studios would make their female stars get abortions so as not to ruin their image both physically and in the public's eye. So she was not the only one that movie studios made yeah. women get abortions. So Judy also was not satisfied in this marriage, and in 1943, she began an affair with Tyrone Power. Wow. Who good supposedly her. got her pregnant again, oh and she was forced to have another abortion. She had great affairs. Frank Sinatra, Yul Brynner, Ooh. Orson Welles. Mm. Good Orson Welles. Oh, okay. Young Orson Welles. Shadow Orson Welles? <laughs> yeah. Citizen Kane. But which part of the movie, <laughs> oh, Orson yeah. Welles? You better pick <laughs> Not Hot Dog Orson Welles. <laughs> hot Dog Orson Welles. <laughs> hot Dog Orson Welles. Oh, no. And our old friend, 
Joe Mankiewicz. Remind me? Isn't he Monkey Bitch? Oh, yeah. Or was that another Mankiewicz? I'm pretty sure that's Monkey Bitch. It's the timeline adds up. He was from the Mankiewicz family. Anyway, she was divorced and filming Meet Me in St. Louis at the time, but Mankiewicz was married with kids and he eventually ended it. So she started dating another actor on set named Tom Drake, who turned out to be gay. Oh, wow. So that's the second man in her life. Around this time with her fame skyrocketing and her marriage to Manelli is when emotionally and mentally Judy started falling apart on the set of Girl Crazy. Ironic. She had missed 17 days of shooting, but people just attribute it to how mean Bugsby, Bugsby, Bugsby or Busby Berkeley was to her. But in reality, Judy's addiction to pills was just just getting worse. That's why she was missing work. She developed insomnia, so she kept popping amphetamines to have energy and then sleeping pills to come down. She was stealing pills from people's medicine cabinets at parties her weight was fluctuating she was going to therapy but she thought the therapist looked bored with her truth so she started making up fake dreams she had because she wanted to keep the therapist entertained and the therapist would applaud her dreams <laughs> she started showing up late on set more and more and sometimes not at all on top of that she was suffering from serious depression and got some serious postpartum after Liza was born yeah. she stayed off pills during her pregnancy but she tried to go out too soon after her birth and she collapsed on the streets of Beverly Hills not only did nobody really know what to do for her there weren't even drugs for depression until 1957. So even if they understood what was going on, they had no medicine or institutions in place to do anything about it. But 1948 was really when her problems came out in the open and they couldn't be ignored anymore. This was when she had a nervous breakdown on the set of The Pirate and was sent to Las Campanas Sanitarium in Compton, which was the best they could do. But after two weeks, she was sent to a hospital in Boston because they weren't equipped to deal with her in Compton. She said that saying goodbye to Liza made her almost literally die of anguish. Meyer paid for her to be sent to Boston because he just wanted her to be away from anyone who would give her pills. She stayed there for 11 weeks. That summer, an LA tabloid called Hollywood Nightlife printed a series of three front page articles about a Miss G who had a serious drug problem and everyone knew exactly who this was. So now this wasn't just Hollywood's worst kept secret. The entire country now knew Judy Garland has a pill problem. They all know what's going on. The hospital in Boston was actually good for her though because they were feeding her three meals a day, like real (laughs) meals, not just cottage cheese and coffee. And she regained her weight to a healthy level yeah. but when she got back to MGM they told her she was too fat and she had to slim down again who gave you three meals a day you did you eat protein right. <laughs> you look well fed what happened <laughs> who is this cow <laughs> what do you weigh 120 pounds <laughs> This was also around the time things were really going south with their marriage to Manelli, which was never good to begin with. Yeah. She later said that the whole marriage was set up by the studio and Manelli turned out no. To be gay. Oh boy. That's number three. Her life was completely out of control and she didn't know how to deal with it. It was around this time that she walked in on him in bed with the handyman. She later said, all my newfound hope evaporated and all I could see ahead was more confusion. I wanted to black out the future as well as the past. I didn't want to live anymore. I wanted to hurt myself and others. This was her first suicide attempt. She cut her wrists, but she survived and not long after was right back on set trying to pretend she was fine, but she could not keep it together. More and more, she wasn't showing up for work. She started getting electroshock shock therapy, but that wasn't helping, surprisingly. She was fired from Annie Get Your Gun, and her reputation of being unreliable spread. Between 1949 and 1950, she was fired from three movies. She was replaced by Ginger Rogers, Betty Hutton, and Jane Powell, which made her so upset that she locked herself in the bathroom at home yelling, I want to die. Then Manelli heard glass smashing in there, broke the door, found that she had broken a water glass and dragged it across her throat. It wasn't that bad. Okay. (laughs) It sounds horrible. It was. She just needed a band-aid. It was just kind of scratched up. But the tabloids and the 
LA Times caught wind of it and reported Judy Garland slits her throat. She tried, mm-hmm. and this publicity just wasn't worth it to MGM anymore. So they terminated the contract of the woman whose life they had helped ruin yeah. a year earlier than it was supposed to end on September 29th, 1950, which did not help her emotional state. This is around the Luft time of her life with all those comeback concerts. Right, right, right. While the concerts themselves were great, the events around them weren't always. She was collapsing from overwork. Some shows she wouldn't show up to at all. A lot of them started hours late and then had a 90-minute intermission where she would go backstage and collapse from exhaustion saying she can't finish the show, but she would. She'd yeah. go out and she'd do it. As the 50s went on, she also started having throat problems that would affect her voice. So she had constant laryngitis and her voice started losing its power, but her personality was still huge and magnetic as ever so the shows were still good one time she was at a bar drinking when she was supposed to be on stage and an agent found her and scolded her for being late but she just looked at him and said honey they don't pay me to be on time they pay to see the drama oh my god (laughs) judy garland that's hey can't Uh, argue with that nope then in the fall of 1959 she got so sick she couldn't work at all and she went to a hospital in new york where they found out she had hepatitis and she had had it for like three years caused by all the pills and the tranquilizers she was taking and the doctors told her you're never going to perform again Again, but nothing ever stops Judy Garland and that's when she bounced back and did that legendary Carnegie Hall concert after that after that then there were her comeback with the star is born that was a nightmare it was yeah. supposed to cost three million dollars to make but Judy would barely show up on set and when she did she'd often hide in her dressing room crying and then leave and not come back for several days so it took twice as long to make that movie and cost six million dollars because of her delays saddest part was that she did such a good job on the movie regardless and she was expected to win the Oscar for it and on Oscar night she was in the hospital because she had just given birth to her son the day before so all the camera crews were outside her room she was all mic'd up to give her an acceptance speech from the hospital bed then the award went to grace kelly Mm. so they just unplugged their equipment left wow left her alone enjoy your son lady (laughs) maybe they'll give you a consolation award again best son meanwhile her marriage with left was maybe her worst one yet from the get-go was bad because they started their affair while they were both still married to their previous spouses and she got pregnant again and was yet again forced to have an abortion this time by left who didn't want to jeopardize their comeback tour that they were planning he wasn't gay okay but he did beat her Ooh. I'd rather the gay. I'd rather the gay. He'll take care of you. <laughs> Especially when he found out that she was cheating on him. On top of that, he had a gambling problem and gambled away most of her money. And then many years later, in 1993, he tried to sell her Oscar and he got sued by the Motion Picture Academy. <laughs> her manager was also stealing her money and none of it had been safe. So even while she was an international star, she was almost completely broke. She would skip out on hotel bills. Supposedly, she was staying on some of her fans' couches. Her life was a mess. Then in 1964, her sister committed suicide, which led to Judy herself overdosing in Hong Kong. Luft claimed that in their 13 years of marriage, Judy had attempted suicide 20 times, which is why he fought her so hard in the divorce for custody of their kids. And even though Liza had to call the ambulance several times to save her mom's life and had to keep her from jumping out of a window once, and one time she threw a knife at her son, she did love her kids, and she tried to be as good to them as she could, given her situation. She made a to not treat them the same way her mom did. But as her kids got older, she got kind of estranged from them and her life was getting more and more isolated because she was superhuman in many people's yeah. eyes. She once said, if I'm such a legend, why am I so lonely? Boy, Very sad. She also knew her reputation. She said, I've heard how difficult it is to be with Judy Garland. Do you know how difficult it is to be Judy Garland and for me to live with me? I'm told I'm a legend. Fine. But I don't know what that means. I certainly didn't ask to be a legend. I was totally unprepared for it. Her marriage to Heron wasn't much better. He also hit her, as he said, only in self-defense. He was also gay. Wow, okay. So sometimes... Check all. Yeah. (laughs) He was actually caught having an affair with none other than Liza Minnelli's husband, Peter Allen. Whoa. Yeah, that's because they're not related, related, but like... 
they're mother and daughter. Yeah. Like mother, like daughter. But the reason he left her so soon is because he found out that if he was married to Judy longer than six months, he would have to inherit her tax debts. So he left. Then when she was with Tom Green, my bum is on the grand larceny because he was stealing jewelry from her. Oh, wow. And the way that she met her last husband in the first place was that he was delivering pills to her one night. So it was just... You know what I like about you? Pills. <laughs> I like the way you pay me for delivering things. <laughs> so her personal life was a mess and she just wasn't able to hold on to movie roles anymore. She had already lost out on being in South Pacific and now she had lost out on being in Funny Girl. Here's the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood connection. She was originally cast in Valley of the Dolls alongside Sharon Tate, but she couldn't show up when she was expected to be there, so she got replaced by Susan Hayward. So she was supposed to be in that movie, There's Your Transition, but she did make off with her costume from that movie, so (laughs) (laughs) she ended up wearing it. really did come out on top? She she wore it on her comeback tour shows, which for as popular as they were, they had a lot of hiccups. At one show, she showed up 20 minutes late and got heckled for being late, so she immediately walked off stage and then announced she was too sick to continue the tour, then showed up for the next show the next night. So it was all over the place. Other times, she had breadsticks thrown at her for being late. Apparently, one time backstage, she set the dress she was wearing on fire. By the time 1969 came along, she was really frail. And on the day of her death, supposedly her and her husband had had a big fight that he stormed off from and came home, found her dead. It's not ever been entirely clear whether or not this overdose was an accident or not. So we don't really know. She was loved by so many people, but nobody close to her knew how to help her. The guy who wrote a lot of her songs said, everybody loves Judy, but she thinks nobody loves her. There weren't drug rehab facilities until 1968, but by then it was too late for her. She just became such a huge star, she couldn't control it. She said that everyone always expected her to always be her best, but she didn't always feel like her best, so she took pills to get her through it, and she couldn't stop. When she was asked why she still worked so hard to perform she said because I was born to do that she didn't didn't know anything else I mean her earliest memory would be performing she said the stage was my only friend it was the only place I felt equal and safe when you've lived the life I've lived when you've loved and suffered and been madly happy and desperately sad well that's when you realize you'll never be able to set it all down maybe you'd rather die first and she did but she knew that applause alone doesn't sustain you at 3am when you can't sleep show business preyed on her and it slowly ate her alive if the studios hadn't exploited her the way that they did she could have had a more stable life drawn out over a longer length of time on vaudeville or something but the hollywood studio system it was so high octane that it needed her young and needed her often and it burnt her out she's considered to be the first public victim of stardom and she didn't even really want to be a movie star like she didn't want this she just wanted to sing on records and in concerts she didn't even like la i dare say she hated la it wasn't (laughs) a good place for her and it put her around a lot of people that weren't looking out for her best interests. she said i hate the sun For 36 years, I looked out the window every morning and there it was. Always the same. I don't like swimming pools, but I stayed there and I don't know why. Perhaps because I thought it was my home. But she hated when people said she was a tragic figure. She wasn't always unhappy. She laughed a lot. She had a good sense of humor. She was laughing. She loved a lot. Her life was simultaneously great and horrible and she always felt that her life was going to get better someday. She said, there's something besides the man that got away or over the rainbow or the trolley song. There's a woman. There are three children. There's me. There's a lot of life going on here. She was a classic show person and maybe the last of the classic movie stars before things changed in 1969 and the new wave took over. She was a perfect embodiment of that golden age that ended in 1969, which her and that, this whole past of Hollywood, despite all their faults, are still looked back on fondly and they still endure. And everyone makes a big deal about Marilyn Monroe, but how many people have really seen the seven-year itch? Yeah. Everybody's heard Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. We all know that song. And for better or worse, that song became her life. Like, not only was she she only known, not only, but that was her most known thing, but that song, the meaning of that song 
it perfectly captures what she was struggling with her entire life. She even said, I tried my damnedest to believe in that rainbow that I tried to get over and I couldn't. I just couldn't. Oh my God. Sad. Wow. Sad stuff. It's tragic, but like showbiz. (laughs) (laughs) That's the machine. And that's what the machine does to you. That's what the machine creates, which is great. And that's like the toxic sludge that yeah. comes out of a nuclear... It makes me think of... Pete Townsend was talking about rock and roll, but it applies to this too. I'm paraphrasing and really badly, but he's like, oh, there's... there's <laughs> I'm going to throw this TV out the window. <laughs> there's this like really beautiful fire and it's like keeping everyone warm. It's lighting everything up. And as you get closer to this beautiful fire, you see that what's keeping the fire going is bodies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like something Pete Townsend would say. <laughs> it's weird because, uh, you, you know, before really doing this, I knew Judy Garland was a star beyond The Wizard yeah, of Oz, but like The of Wizard of Oz is... And that's she had a lot of problems, but the Wizard of Oz is so massive. Like yeah. that is, if she had only done that, yeah. she would still, still be a be legend. Famous, yeah. But like, she did so much stuff, and like, not only did she do so much stuff, that was so early. That was so early in her <laughs> career, and she carried yeah. on after yeah. that. For so she many had another years. thirty years yeah. after that where she like, was mostly on top. Yeah, and how many times did you say, and then she came back, and then she came back, <laughs> and her big comeback. Yeah, her particular talent endured throughout so many decades. Yeah, and she was able to capture whatever people were into and bring it back. And even if Pete, like vaudeville wasn't a thing anymore, like, well, I'm doing it. Yeah. And now we all like it again. Uh, <laughs> and as soon as I stop doing it, it's going to die. Yeah. Judy Garland. Wow. Okay. What a gal. It's a halfway halfway yeah. point. Halfway Let's point. take a little take breather. A yeah. We're going to enter our listener question right now. Okay. We're going to do the uh, listener question in the middle again. Let us know. We don't know where to put it. We, yeah. The beginning seems like too much at the beginning. The end might be too much at the end. If we're trying the middle to might, conclude. Yeah, yeah. The middle might disrupt the flow. I don't know. Let us know where it works best. Yeah. How about in the middle? Right at the climax of a story. What's your favorite pair of socks? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's sad that I had an answer when you asked. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. This listener question, it comes, uh, sent an email. I didn't send, I, I didn't do this. this <laughs> me, uh, from my alias. Chris Myers sent this in an email. If you had the time travel option, would you want to see LA in its early days or a hundred years from now? That's hard. Because I'm trying to think of early days and what that means. And I'm going to say like 1840s, 1880s. Because uh-huh. I, I at first when I had saw that, I thought it said 100 years ago or 100 years from now. And okay. I was thinking 100 years ago was, was 19, 19 yeah, the like, brink of the next boom. Of- well, what's funny is that I was thinking 100 years ago was 1819. Where am I? How long have I been asleep? <laughs> the theme of being Rip and Winkle has been going strong this month for you. So I'm getting a few gray hairs. Okay? <laughs> so I took one really long nap. Um, yeah, you're right. 1919. I'm not. I'm definitely not interested in 1919. I kind of. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Given the choice. Given of course, choice. I'll go back in time. Yeah. Well, if it was the really early, early days, like the Spanish days, like Zorro days, that I'm kind of interested in. But I think I'm more interested in seeing 100 years in the future, of Why? course. Why? I want to see if I can afford a house. Did <laughs> <laughs> Did no, I ever get that house? How deep into Blade Runner will we be? In a <laughs> hundred years from now might be uh, really sad, but I, I think I'd rather see it. I think there would be more. To, obviously, there'd be more to see in the future than in the early days yeah. where there was like four houses. That's kind of my dilemma because I'm like, do I want to go to the future where I'll get really sad because nothing has gotten better year by year, or do I want to go to the past where there's just nothing? Like yeah. nineteen, okay, nineteen nineteen. There was a lot going on. Okay, we're we're after World War One. We're at eight. Uh, what? Uh, it was it when did world i don't know where when world War. i'm gonna look it up so i don't sound like an idiot too late <laughs>
you know, you're kind of convincing me. The more I think about it, the future could be like, it might be Terminator in a hundred yeah. years. I'm, I'm a little scared now, but I, mean, I would like to see like, how how are we going to get ourselves out of this one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we did it again. But I'm always interested in the future. So I'd like to see. Yeah, you want to see space I, stuff. Yeah, I want to see how many uh, how many robot lovers each person <laughs> is allotted. I would go to the past. The real, like the Zorro days of? E- either one. I would go to the 1850s. It's not going to be great. I would not want to go to the 1850s because that's, that's like, hey, you've got too many eyebrows. I'm going to oh, shoot you. Like, yeah, that, right. Those that are is, this kind of gross, scary days. I can days. take care of myself. Are you still looking up when World War I was? 1914 and 1918. Okay. I would want to see what people saw. Like everyone always describes it as a paradise. Like the West was a paradise. The Pacific was a paradise. Los Angeles, Southern California, a paradise. And I want to see what that looked like. So you want to see it for the nature? Yeah. Okay. And if somebody approaches me, I'm automatically <laughs> kill them. Sure. I mean, it's just jail rules. If you kill someone on your first day in old Los Angeles, you're top dog. You own everything. You're mayor. Yeah, you're mayor. Which used to be called top dog. <laughs> so yeah, you're going low, I'm going high. That sums us up. So, uh, <laughs> so we're back to the year 1969. That's where we are. I'm assuming you're going to take it back a little bit and then go forward a little bit. But that is the focal point. Judy Garland's gone. It's Who's going to be, be top I'm dog gonna, now? I'm going to slingshot you. I'm going to send us all the way back to 1926. That's just after World War One. <laughs> my segment is called Creature with a Thousand Features, <laughs> meaning movies. My sources were Roger Corman, Best of the Cheap Acts by Mark Thomas McGee and Crab Monsters, Teenage Caveman and Candy Stripe Nurses, Roger Corman, King of the Bee Movie by Chris Nashawadi. Also the documentary Corman's World, which is perfect and it's so funny. It's important to start by clearing up that Roger Corman did not invent independent filmmaking, nor did he create Bee Movie Pride. He was just the best at it. So little Roger Corman was born in Motor City, Detroit, Michigan, 1926. It's four years after Judy Garland. He's pretty She was already on stage singing by then. (laughs) She already had a catalog of songs. Jingle bells. (laughs) Jingle bells again. Jingle bells redux. He was born to William and Anne Corman. His childhood sounds like the childhood I'm convinced that I had, but I really didn't. (laughs) He spent his childhood reading Edgar Allan Poe and building wooden model airplanes for him and his younger brother, Gene. And they would sneak off to the movies and see classics of old Hollywood like Mutiny on the Bounty. Hmm. He remembers that being specifically inspiring to him. The Great Depression didn't cripple his family. His dad had good work that survived the hardship, but things did get a little tight and the sense of frugality made a lasting impression on both the Corman brothers. So William was an engineer back in Detroit and that afforded him the opportunity to move his family to Beverly Hills, California in 1940 after he retired. This is when... Just before World War II. <laughs> so Roger and Gene attended Beverly Hills High and both hmm. of them started getting interested in the entertainment business. But it seems like Roger Corman's early life was about wanting to get into the movies and then making a move to avoid it. Wait, he would, what? Like he, would, he was getting more interested in it and then he would do something that completely derailed hmm. that interest. Okay. So he, he was self-destructive. Pretty much. So I guess he does have a lot of common <laughs> with Judy Garland. He was in... Okay, so what was Judy Garland doing in like 1940? Like already she being was, in some movies? She was... I mean, that was post Wizard of oh, Oz. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. I, that was like Meet Me in... No, that was before Meet Me in St. Louis. She, Yeah, I think she was she, doing more Andy Hardy stuff. She okay. was getting fake Oscars. So around like, this time... More on that later. <laughs> he was in school plays and seemed to really like being part of a production. But then after high school, he decided to follow in his dad's footsteps and study engineering at Stanford. While at I see Sta- what you mean now. Yeah. While at Stanford, Roger, again... Joined the Navy as a member <laughs> I of the- to study drama at Stanford. <laughs> he joined the Navy as a member of the officers training program and he hated it. He hated authority figures. He didn't like people commanding him around. He would do almost anything to get out of it. Authority figures like Louis B. Meyer and yeah. the studio heads. Mm-hmm, pretty hmm. much. Interesting. As for Stanford, it seemed like that didn't really matter much to him either. Like he said, even as they were handing him the diploma, he knew that it felt wrong. There was he, he felt nothing for it. Corman was writing here and there and sold some articles and that 
felt good to him. That felt right to him. His parents supported his decision to stray from engineering and go to show business. They were totally fine with it. This was in 1947, and Roger Corman was going to get into the legitimate Hollywood system. So now he wanted in with the authority. Exactly. But there's nothing else. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You wanted into the business, you had to be swallowed by the machine. Yeah. That's the only way. <laughs> it's men in black. You got to be swallowed <laughs> by uh, Edgar. Is that in the one that I saw? His first entertainment job was at 20th Century's Fox as a messenger in the mailroom where he earned 32.50 a week delivering inner office memos on How a many bicycle. thousand is that in today's dollars? <laughs> That's about three million a week. <laughs> he was delivering memos like Eddie Maddox to like Louis Bamer. Like she ate another. That she was ate Fox. Danish, she yeah. wasn't at Fox though. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Well, th- they had similar. their own Eddie Maddox. <laughs> <laughs> they had their own problem child. Shirley Temple. Yeah. The, the enfant terrible. <laughs> Soon after, he worked as a messenger. He got a job, your dream job, as being a story analyst and a reader, making $65 a week, which is double what he was making before. Mm. So it's only half as miserable. <laughs> His job was basically summing up novels and spec scripts, a majority of them trash. And then he'd mm. give them notes and he would put aside any ones that can go into production. One of the first burns that Roger Corman suffered from the industry was when he took a liking to a story called The Big Gun, which was a Western. He found the story and he gave notes to make it better. Well, that movie went on to become The Gunslinger with Gregory Peck mm. and his notes for the story were used in the finished film, but Corman received no credit for them mm. as is the machine yeah. <laughs> and his boss got a big bonus for The Gunslinger. Huh. The film was even nominated... Way to give notes. <laughs> <laughs> the film was even nominated for a WGA award for best written American Western and Corman thought, fine. But it was an honorary award? Yeah, Certainly. it was. They wrote People it, only get honorary. They yeah. wrote it on the Oscar. Corman thought, fine, it was my job to do this. I didn't need the bonus or even a slight increase in pay but this whole machine runs on credits. I want the credit for that. Your credits are your Boy Scout badges when you're early in career. And I just needed the credit for fixing a story I like. That's how I'm going to move ahead. And you didn't give me the credit. But we both know that's not how it works. But you could see that frustration clearly. Mm-hmm. I did work. The work was recognized. I got no recognition. Mm-hmm. So he left Fox to go to jolly old England on GI Bill to attend Oxford University for the purpose of studying literature so he could read scripts. What? Well, he also <laughs> wanted to write too. But like when I read it, I'm like, did you go to did, yeah. Oxford to read scripts? And here's my thesis on the works of Shakespeare. Now let me read The Beast of a Hundred Boobs. <laughs> well, that goes well, I guess, because when he returns to sunny old Angel City, he gets a job at KLAC. And then after that, landed a job as a literary agent at the Dick Irving Highland Agency. It's now 1954, and Corman is using his position at the Dick Irving Highland as an opportunity to push his own scripts to a company called Allied Artists, which had a small brick office building at the east end of Sunset near Hoover. So that's how you do it. Pretty Infiltrate much. from the inside, like yeah. men in black. <laughs> like the Nazis. I'm not going to let you kill that reference. Uh, it was much like Will Smith in Men in Black <laughs> when he killed Hitler. <laughs> I think I'm remembering that movie wrong. So it was a violation of the rules of the agency he worked for trying to sell his own scripts, a fireable offense, mm. but he didn't care because that was the the end goal was, I don't care mm. about this job. Just go to another next, job. No, it's going, <laughs> yeah, I'll just do this in another place. The first screenplay he wrote that he was peddling was The House in the Sea, which was inspired by a trip he took to the Sultan Sea. It was about a Korean war vet who was wrongly accused of killing a woman, so like any B-grade noir film. Around the same time, Roger's brother Gene manages to become an agent after reading in someone's memoirs that they got up, made, made a lot of connections while playing tennis, specifically specifically at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. And Gene thought, well, I like tennis and I like connections. What so a he- sweet view of the world these people <laughs> And it worked. This is such old Hollywood stories. Like I was eating milkshakes at a Schwab's pharmacy yeah. and this guy and said, suddenly- you want a five picture deal? You Jack Pierce to- came in yeah. and said, I'm looking for a new Frankenstein. <laughs> his connections would be needed soon because Roger was parlaying his own connections to push his screenplay. And like I said, he took his screenplay to Allied Artists and managed to sell it for $4,500. And he would get multiple credits for this. He got co-writer in a associate producer why did I say like a long list co-writer he got a co-writer and associate, <laughs> associate producer, producer. and that's it <laughs> and a guy who finished his sentence as well <laughs> allied artist took the script and pretty much 
butchered it. They rewrote large portions of it and ended with changing the name from House in the Sea to Highway Dragnet to cash in on the hit show Dragnet, which is just like a thing that happens now. Like maybe they'll confuse it and watch yeah. this by accident. This was another offense to Corman, but it happens. But yeah, it, he still is getting offended. Like I worked on this thing and you don't like it. Why? <laughs> but he walked away this time, at least with money and credits and the confidence to try producing a movie on his own with the help from his brother. The two started Palo Alto Productions, which is funny that the guy who creates such memorable titles for movies couldn't come up with a better name for a production company. That's fine. They had an office at 9170 Sunset Boulevard on the strip right above the historic Cock and Bull Pub, which is a birthplace of the Moscow Mule. Oh, yeah. That year was 19, still 1954. And still frustrated from his two minor upsets with the film industry, Roger Corbin began the first of what would be many of his types of movies with Monster from the Ocean Floor. Mm-hmm. Roger wrote it. He was out raising money to make it while Gene arranged a distribution with a man named Roger Lippert, who had once owned 60 movie theaters in California, Oregon, but now was making low-budget films for 20th Century Fox. Corbin got the idea for the story from an article about a one-man submarine which had been manufactured by Aerojet. It's preposterous. So Monster from the Ocean Floor was about a one-eyed sea creature, and it looks like an octopus with a bulby head and one big glowing eye. It's super of that era. It sounds like Men in Black. Roger Corman's Men in Black. (laughs) I'd watch that. (laughs) Corman didn't write or direct this movie. He was producing it. It was written by Bill Donch and directed by White or Dung. Corman and his crew raised about $12,000 for it and also managed to get the actual one-man submarine from Aerojet for the movie in exchange for free publicity for the machine. I I feel like they didn't quite understand what movie it was being used no, for. No, it's funny that... This the, thing can kill a monster. <laughs> the one-man submarine. I got a screen credit, too. Submarine built by Aerojet General. <laughs> submarine played by <laughs> the movie, Underwater Boat. <laughs> the movie was shot in six days with some scenes shot at the Leo Carrillo State Beach along PCH. Hey, it's pretty cool. That's where I got engaged. Was it? Yeah. Are you the monster from the ocean floor? <laughs> yeah. You're that guy. I put a ring on that, on that <laughs> tentacle thing. Her name's Melissa. <laughs> it was made for $12,000 and sold to Roger Lippert for $110,000, but when he found out that it was made for far less than Gene Corman had led him to believe. He shaved $10,000 off the deal. Still a pretty good deal, though. It was profitable, but they Mm -hmm. could have had $10,000 more. But like, $20 $20 million back then. Yeah, exactly. This could have... That's fit. like four hours of work for Judy Garland. <laughs> <laughs> Even if she doesn't perform, she shows up, she makes that. She makes more money when she doesn't show up. But Roger was still not satisfied. He saw how fast you could shoot it and how cheap you could do it for. And he was understanding that you could still make a bunch of movies in a year and rake in all the profits, then make the movies that you were dying to make. He- make profitable trash for cheap so that you can make a good movie. Yeah, eventually. Eventually. So that same year, 1954, Roger Corman produced another B-grade crime pick called The Fast and the Furious. What? which is only similar <laughs> in title to the original one. They bought and the rights. Yeah. <laughs> a young Paul Walker. When they bought the rights to the Fast and Furious in the 2000s, they only bought the title. This Wait a minute, is that true? Yeah. Really? Yeah. They bought the rights to the movie, but they only bought the rights to the title. This Fast and Furious involves a trucker framed for murder who breaks out of jail, takes a young woman hostage, and enters her sports car in a cross-border road race, hoping to get to Mexico before the police catch him. That's not Fast and the Furious? No, that's not the Fast and the Furious that we've come to... Know and love? Yeah, know and love. <laughs> I've come to know and only know, really. I've never watched it. So both Columbia and Republic Pictures offered to buy the movie off of Palo Alto, but Corman wanted to make the kind of money on the deal that would result in him being able to make several movies throughout the year, all done at both a fast pace and a furious pace. And a Tokyo Drift pace. <laughs> now, through the director of Monster from the Ocean Floor, White Ordung, Roger came in contact with a guy named Jim Nicholson, who was a sales manager at something called Real Art. I don't know what they did. Who was hoping to start his own distribution company. Nicholson heard that Corman was selling the Fast and the Furious and wanted to buy it and use it to help close a deal with exhibitors across the country. Nicholson's plan was to sell the Fast and Furious on the condition that 
I, ne- yeah, gotta I, never, get over it. I never knew that we would be so blatantly using the name Fast and Furious on this podcast. Well, we're never going to talk about Vin Diesel's career. How he's a perfect metaphor for the <laughs> new Hollywood transition. <laughs> Nicholson's plan was to sell a Fast and Furious on the condition that the exhibitors advance the money for three additional movies. Okay. We're still not talking about the modern day Fast why would, and the Furious. It's 1954. Why would we talk about... But there's making all these sequels. Oh my God. We're what not- was the names of the other ones? Is it Too Fast, Too Furious, Greg? Oh, no. <laughs> Tokyo Drift, Six Fast, Six Furious. Uh, Shobbs and Haw. Hob- <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw, whatever. Bedknocks and Broomsticks. Oh, no. Fast and the Furious presents Bedknocks and Broomsticks. <laughs> they wanted to sell this and show it to exhibitors, and they would get advanced for three additional movies. So Corman gave Nicholson 30 days to see if this would work. Corman and Nicholson flew across the country pitching to exhibitors. These two, Corman and Nicholson, along with a lawyer named Sam Arkoff, would make up this team that would make most of the Corman career. Sam Arkoff was a lawyer and Jim Nicholson would form American International Pictures AIP which I'll call for the rest of this thing and Corman would be their biggest supplier Corman was sort of like the third musketeer like he was heavily involved he's not part of AIP but AIP pretty much bought anything that Corman made so he was like the third man in this team for a long time he was their only supplier the deal was that he would make like 10 movies a year and upon delivery for each movie he'd get $50,000 negative pickup whatever that means plus 15 <laughs> uh, you don't want Shark Tank $15,000 advance on a foreign sale so they're making movies together AIP and Corman mid 50s this was a time when television walloped the theaters for the attention of the American audiences and movies went into the Judy full, Garland show Judy Garland <laughs> show and movies went into full panic mode along with the anti- The Sopranos come out or something? Yeah, had to watch every episode. Had to watch <laughs> to be The there. Wire. There were four channels, CBS, NBC, <laughs> ABC, HBO. Kind of controversial at the time, but you know, leave it to Viva. I've seen all the episodes already. Sopranos, what's this family about? What's, what are they, what happens Greek? when this kid misbehaves? <laughs> oh no. Oh jeez. Why is he digging a hole and crying? <laughs> so television came, started kicking movie theaters in the ass. That alongside the antitrust law that prevented film studios from owning movie theaters, squeezing out low-budget independent-made movies. So now low-budget movies from these rinky-dink studios, they had a chance to be seen. And American audiences were becoming more accustomed to relatable stories instead of grand epics done by these studios. Also, also, 1954 was the year the horror movie Them and Godzilla came out, setting out the nuclear monster movies of the 50s. So they were really good ones that came out and then just all the bad ones followed. (laughs) Guess who was responsible for all the bad ones? You also had like really popular Western TV shows coming on at the time. Bonanza for for young kids and teenagers. Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Uh, The Rifleman. (laughs) You know a lot. (laughs) Zorro. The ultimate Western gunslinger. So the first movie he made for AIP was in 1955. It was a Western called Five Guns West and Corman would be directing it and he hadn't really directed anything to this point with like actual stakes like money behind it and had to be seen by a lot of people. It was said that he had his eyes glued to the script while scenes were being filmed until eventually the writer told Corman to concentrate on the actors being filmed. Roger has said that. saying the line. (laughs) I just want to make sure that they get every punctuation mark. (laughs) You didn't say period. I went to Oxford. (laughs) Roger has said that making the first movie was so nerve wracking. You'll love this. He was sick to his stomach the whole time mm, my kind of guy it rained the first day and he was on his way to the set when it started to come down and he pulled over and threw up on the side of the road <laughs> that's the perfect time to do it because everyone <laughs> thinks it's just more rain okay so low budget filmmaking is interesting in a lot of different ways but my favorite is how people get into them like the director of monster from the ocean floor recruited a gas station attendant in hollywood and possible actor i don't know jonathan hayes for a role he then went on to play a role in the fast and the furious um <laughs> hayes then got his friend billy campbell to write a script for corman in exchange for writing a big role 
for Hayes. Hayes, who was an actor, through his roles in Corman movies, became a valuable asset to the productions and eventually became the stunt coordinator for all of the Corman picks while continuing to act in the movies. So it's friends helping friends and gaining a wide array of experience because on these low budget movies, you do a bunch of stuff you weren't necessarily hired for and you get all these experiences and then you bring your friends in and then and you bring college this, credit. And you also get college credit <laughs> and you don't have to worry about that at come come uh, re-enrollment time at Oxford to be a production <laughs> assistant. <laughs> Imagine him having to go back to Oxford in between movies. <laughs> so after Five Guns West comes Apache Woman in 1956, probably because he wanted to reuse the sets and props and actors and the cameras were out. Like that's exactly how he worked. Like I have everything out now. Might as well shoot three Westerns while we have the guns before we get to get back to the rental thing. Like it's so ludicrous. Like that Dick Miller guy, you know, Dick Miller, the actor, he played two roles on Apache Woman as both a cowboy and a Native American. And if I remember correctly from the documentary, he shoots himself in the movie. <laughs> all along, I was the cowboy <laughs> and the Indian. Wasn't that a metaphor that we were all looking for? Yeah. So around, hey. yeah. Pretty good. Around this time. Well done, Roger Corman. <laughs> pretty smart guy. Did you go to Oxford? <laughs> Around this time, it's becoming very evident that unless Corman could figure a way to make the third movie for half the price, the difference left over would come out of his pocket. Because the deal was that he had to make these three movies for then, and then they would start paying off, and he can get into the cycle of being paid for each movie. So while filming Apache Woman, Corman sends Lou Place, an actor and a production manager, to go out to make a non-union film in Indio, and he gave him $28,000 to do this. It was based on a sci-fi script from Tom Flyer, and eventually became the with a million eyes hmm. so boom they make it and hand it over to AIP and they sell it but there's a snag when the exhibitors see the movie and they realize that there isn't a visible monster it was sort of like an alien watching over everything with no visible like no actual manifest monster with a million eyes though. with a million <laughs> eyes so now they're refusing to buy it so it comes back to Corman and now you know he's got to throw this gash down monster in this thing so Corman contacts none other than monster boy himself Uncle Forey Forrest yeah. J. Ackerman monster king proprietor Give me one of your spare monsters <laughs> yeah quick you got, a, you got any monsters lying around proprietor and ghoul daddy of famous monsters <laughs> <laughs> film land. So Forey put Corman in contact with a special effects guy named Paul Blasdale. Paul Blart special offense part. <laughs> Paul Blaisdale, who quickly put together a little hand puppet and a miniature spaceship for $200 and saved the movie. Not really. No one really yeah. liked it. And Lou Place had Thanks for saving us. Yeah. Lou Place had taken his name off of the movie, but contractually it fulfilled Corman's three picture deal, which was the Fast and the Furious. Technically it's a movie. Yeah. Technically it runs on frames. There's 24 frames per second after he has the three movie deal done let's go make another picture he had made a deal with two drive-in theater owners in new orleans to make a pick for them and he was off to louisiana to film swamp women he set it up real nice down there for his cast and crews they stayed at an abandoned hotel with running water and little house one actress's bed collapsed in the middle of the night did they have uh strings hanging from the ceiling that swayed around with no one around to touch it <laughs> oh, oh they do <laughs> after swamp women came the day that the world ended in 1956 it was with this movie that i remember that date <laughs> I remember the was day that, the world ended. Was that April 6th? <laughs> it was with this movie that AIP and Corman were going to see if they can get a percentage off the box office sales from exhibitors because so far their movies were always the B-side to a double feature, hence B-movie, not mm. the letter, not the insect. <laughs> I wrote that in my notes because I don't let them say it. So as B-movies on double bills, <laughs> they were only entitled to a flat rental rate for movies, which was usually a couple hundred dollars. 300 was decent for them. AIP and Corman wanted a percentage of the box office. And so AIP went and stuck two movies together, The Day of the World Ended and Defend Them from 10,000 Leagues, which is, we we know what you're ripping off, <laughs> together and sold them as a package for the same money. Under the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> he put these two movies together and sold them as a package for the same money that the exhibitors were giving to me major studios for a single crap movie now you get two crap movies for the price of one so the exhibitors saw the scheme and tried to split up the movies and aip held firm on their decision slash scheme it paid off in the first week of december in detroit detroit decided to go with this deal so when that deal went through there was a blizzard in detroit and also a newspaper strike 
can't throw up on that. So that's too visible. That'll hang. That'll freeze. And it's <laughs> that's six gonna weeks. be there till spring. Yeah. And people will make fun of you in spring. <laughs> trust me. So there's a newspaper strike that threatens the movies coming out as does this blizzard. So Nicholson and Arkoff they fly to Detroit and they went around the streets in a monster caravan right. with people dressed up as monsters trying to convince people to go to the movies. And by golly, it worked. Go to the movies. I'm gonna eat your daughter in a stroller if you don't go see Phantom from Ten Thousand Seas or whatever. Monster Caravan is just two words I love saying. <laughs> Roger and Gene back home were also making friends and networking, which people in Hollywood think is the same thing. Focusing <laughs> on drive-in theaters and children's mat. Burn. Burn. Solid burn. I would love it if the machine ate me. <laughs> At least you get paid. I would love to be sucked into the gears <laughs> and have to take pills. They're back home. They're making connections. And they're focusing on drive-in theaters and children's matinees because they know their audience. They've become close with the owner of the Pacific Drive-In Theater chain, a man named Burt Pirosh. A pretty powerful guy as far as exhibitors go because LA had a huge chain of Pacific Drive-Ins. And you, if you weren't playing his drive-ins, then you weren't playing your movie in LA. And that was like a big market and getting people to watch movies in LA. And you wouldn't play drive-ins if you weren't making these types of B movies that they were making. Those were the only things because audiences were there for them. And as long as you play to the audience, they're just there to have backroom music while they mac. No, they those passion pits. Well, they're naked now there. As long as you play to these audiences and follow the cultural trends that they were into, you're going to make money. That's what Roger Corman did his entire career. He saw a cultural change coming and he followed it. Hmm. So they're about seven movies deep into this thing, and usually with the same people who are the no, beast that's seven movies deep, <laughs> the creature with thousand features. <laughs> Around seven movies, Get it now. that's funny. But seven movies in, that's when he starts forming the. Corman crew. The first couple features, he saw that not everyone was particularly good at their jobs. So the next feature, he'd bring back the ones who were good at their jobs, drop the ones that were bad, and repeat the process mm -hmm. for each movie. And each movie, he'd bring the good people that worked for him before were getting better. New ones would come on board. The new bad ones would be dropped. The new good ones would be kept for the next picture, and they would Soon get better. you get a pure muscle. A yeah. pure muscle film crew. Exactly. Is that a thing? Uh, it's, it's a thing on my arm, so I'm assuming <laughs> it can be on film crews as well. His production team, they started getting hired by other crews because uh, they were so, so good. Them. Not necessarily because they liked working for Corman. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> Floyd Crosby, who did camera work for Monster on the Ocean Floor, that was his number one cinematographer. He would eventually be the cinematographer for High Noon, and which was mm. certainly not a Corman pick <laughs> and won an Academy Award. He won an Academy Award for Taboo. Wait, you can win Academy Awards? <laughs> <laughs> you don't just be guilt given or denied them <laughs> by <won't>. Grace Kelly. <laughs> Grace Kelly was in High Noon, by the way. Um, and the Oscar goes to <laughs> the Beast from Beast from a Thousand Feet. Floyd Crosby. I'd like to thank. I'd like to thank. The, I'd like to thank God who I did not make me. <laughs> Thank God who I've destroyed. <laughs> who I'm an affront to. You fear me. You really fear me. So Floyd Crosby worked on High Noon after working for years on Corman movies. He won an Academy Award for Taboo, a story in the South Seas. He's also father to David Crosby. Really? Yeah. Huh, David, that's too bad. <laughs> what a shame. David Haller was an art director and Ronald Sinclair was his editor. Marjorie Corso was his costume manager. Dick Rubin and Carl Brainerd were his prop manager. Jack Herrera was his assistant director and Jonathan Hayes was his stunt coordinator and one of his biggest actors. His chief composer, I was going to tell you this one in and out earlier, was Ronald Stein. He took a chance on Stein, not paying him much, obviously, but giving him the chance to work. He composed 12 movies in like two years, 1956 to like 1958. And in case you missed that, yep, Roger Corbin made 12 movies in one <laughs> Year. Anyways, Stein was said to be the finest composer working in low-budget movies. Feinstein. He's Feinstein. He was the finest composer working in these trashy movies. I was reading about him, and I knew that I knew his name from somewhere. And then I remember that Ronald Stein made music for one of my favorite movies ever, a little Jack Hill movie called Spider Baby, which of was, course he did. is fantastic. The movie, the music is fantastic throughout <laughs> the whole movie with a theme song. 
<laughs> is absolutely perfect. Launching spider a, baby, <laughs> spider baby. Launching a junior sings it, and it's if you're near your computer, please listen to the thing from Spider Baby because it's so good. You can hear how old <laughs> Launching a Junior Garland's version of it. It sounds a lot like Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Spider. <laughs> Which, by the way, speaking of spiders and Judy Garland, the song Starman on the Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars is musically the same song as Over the Rainbow. Really? Starman. Na, 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 na. Uh, he ripped her off. Yeah. Good for him. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so Ronstein got his start with Roger Corman. Charles Bronson got an early leading role in Machine Gun Kelly. Robert Town, who wrote screenplay to Chinatown, got mm-hmm. his start writing The Last Woman on Earth for hmm. Corman. All he got from Corman was the title, and Town had to go from there. This is the first of like maybe two or three where I just list all of the people who worked for Corman through the years. Monty Hellman, who later directed Tulane Blacktop and Cockfighter, both starring the incredible Warren Oates, got to start directing The Beast from the Haunted Cave when he had very little experience. Even at this early stage of Corman's career, he was helping to create superb movies in the future and nobody knew it yet i mean even at this point he's kind of training the people who made a mini revolution inside the studio system Basically, like two lane yeah. black Black yeah, Blacktop and everything. Black Blop. Black Blop, yeah. I've already said it already. He's like training the people who would make great movies in the 70s. And like mm-hmm. the leading force obviously is Easy Rider, but there's a bunch of movies around Easy Rider that yeah. like followed through the 70s that would just follow the same things and they really hammered home this new style of the, making they movies. They are the children of Corman, yeah. or is which called? is another horror movie of his, <laughs> The Man with a Thousand Protégés. <laughs> a sentiment shared amongst many people with Roger Corman was yes, he didn't pay very well, but he gave you an opportunity that no one else was willing to give you and you gained the experience and the credits you needed to go fine work that would pay you well. Corbin knew full well how important these two things were to any person on the low end of the entertainment business. Getting experience and credit were two very important things. Yes, I was that gaffer on the creature with knife hands that ate babies and I'd like a job early. <laughs> and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> now, of all of the success stories to come from Roger Corman's movies, none is bigger than his next one and it happens to be a very early on in both their careers. So Corman decides that he wants to sit in on acting classes to start meeting fresh talent people who had the desire to work hard and were willing to accept very little pay in exchange for credit. It's at Jeff Corey's acting class where he meets a young man who stands out and his name is Jack Nicholson. Wow. And he was so impressed by Nicholson's willingness to work for very little money that he cast him in Crybaby Killer where he would play the Crybaby Killer. <laughs> spoiler. By the, the spoiler. By the way, there is a great, I've said it already, there's a great documentary about Roger Corman, Col- Corman's world and Jack Nicholson is the star of it. He's so <laughs> funny and he cries at the end. Cry spoiler Killer. again. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't, he never left that role. Crybaby Killer, the writer Leo Gordon who acted in the movie gave himself the best line of the movie. Teenagers. We never had him when I was a kid. <laughs> the AIP guys, Arkoff and Nicholson and Corman, they really did stumble onto something unseen in the film industry before. They were successful playing to the cheap seats of the drive-in and the bad theaters that showed double features. Their B-movies were in demand and AIP became the biggest of the independent distributors in Hollywood and Corman was their main guy. This is such the, it's so the opposite of what Judy Garland was doing. It, like it to really think is. Of Crybaby Killer and then look at Broadway Melody. Like exactly. The- <laughs> As you were talking, I was thinking, happening underneath all of this, a, gun, a bunch Literally, of guys. Literally, the B-side. Yeah, the B-side of this. A bunch of guys were in the desert with like 20 grand and like a monster outfit. We're like, I know it's bad. Just keep doing it. Maybe it'll be something one day. Who knows? Just keep doing it. But Judy Garland's going to be at the Orpheum. <laughs> Corman was very practical when it came to his movies. He wanted them done fast and cheap with an eye always on the bottom line. By the end of the 50s, Corman directed 24 movies and was already making plenty of money for AIP, but not enough for himself. So he decides, all right, I want to go into the distribution game. He put Paulo Alto aside and created a company called Film Group. Now, on a bet, I don't know with who or what the bet necessarily was, 
was. I think the bet was like, could you just do it? But on a bet, he bet that he could make a movie in two days with a budget of $20,000. That movie is Little Shop of Horrors and it stands out. Whoa. Yeah. It's like the Jack Nicholson one. Yeah. Wow. Two days. They talk about this movie like it's Beatles Revolver. Like that's when people are like, <laughs> oh, there's something here. Like this movie's funny Need and weird. Well, his camera the sitar ang- playing on, <laughs> his, I'm a dentist. <laughs> his camera angles were getting more ambitious. His scripts were getting funnier. It's a funny movie. Yeah. It came out because his friend had the set already built for something else and it was just sitting there and Corman thought, I can knock out a movie real quick. And that was pretty much the bet. And the guy's like, I bet you can't do it. He's like, I have two days before the set comes huh. down. I'm going to do this. Around this time, he creates one of my favorite movies from his catalog. Maybe of all the movies that I've watched, one of my favorite movies, Bucket of Blood. Have you seen Bucket of Blood? No, but I know you love that I movie. I love Bucket of Blood. <laughs> Written by Charles Griffith and directed by Corman. It's a story of a talent. Do you know the story? No. So there's a waiter at a beatnik bar and he has no talent and he's really awkward and he wants to be a beatnik artist and he winds up first murdering a cat by accident because the cat is in the wall and he's trying to find out where it's at with a knife because he's not smart and he kills the cat and then he covers it in clay and puts it in this gallery and people are like this is great first rule of screenwriting kill the cat <laughs> kill the cat all the hipster artists are like this is jazz baby <laughs> and then he's like well I gotta keep doing it so he just keeps <laughs> killing people and covering yeah. them in clay and taking yeah. them to the art gallery yeah. It's fun. Dick Miller's in it. Dick Miller is so good in this. Some people say that this is a self-reflective piece about Corman. The movie is about Corman's need or want to assimilate into greats of filmmaking, but using cheap death pose as art to do it, which is pretty clever. Did he have anything to do with Head, the monkey? Somebody movie? did. No, he didn't, but it was being done around the... Because Jack Nicholson wrote that, and Jack Nicholson was learning and working from Corman. The guys who paid for Easy Rider were the guys who worked on Head. Okay. We'll get to, we'll get to that fiasco. Roger Corman's personal style was bleeding through to his films despite his lack of finances which is what happens when you learn to work cheap and effectively is that you can execute ideas with ease and with confidence without the money being there can't get a crane shot of the side of a building throw the camera off the roof and hope it doesn't break <laughs> that's diy filmmaking baby that's lesson number one now, it's gonna be a twirly shot <laughs> that's what the guy falling off the roof will think you don't want to be irresponsible you have to also throw the cameraman <laughs> worth with the camera thus comes the old saying throw the cameraman out with the camera <laughs> now that he has a distribution company he can hawk his own movies but also he needs other movies to buy and sell at theaters so he gets into the executive producer game. I think one of the first movies that they bought was Stakeout on Dope Street and it was directed by a newcomer named Irving Kirshner who would a couple decades later oh my God. make the best Star Wars movie <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back. Phantom Man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah, 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 right, yeah. Right. After Stakeout on Dope Street came The Brain Eaters done as a favor to oh. one of the frequent actors Ed Nelson. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Corman gave Nixon six days with Brain Eaters and 26,000 to shoot it. It got made didn't make much of a splash and was later sued by Robert Heinlein for ripping it off from a serial series called The Puppet Master. Corman loved and respected Heinlein and gave him $5,000 in a settlement since the movie was very low budget. <laughs> this is 90% of what we made. <laughs> but Corman saw that things couldn't function the way they did with AIP. Crappy B-movies and Monsters and Bikini Girls were fine, but within 10 years... Yeah, fine. They sure are they fine. They sure are monsters but within 10 years the culture was changing again it's it's the dawn of the 60s so he wanted to stay ahead of the curve he, Aquarius yeah I don't know what that means it's a musical is that a you reference? Hear? Uh, here I can transition nicely <laughs> to singing uh, the age of Aquarius you're breaking my computer I'm breaking your it's computer's heart because that was such a beautiful <laughs> it's just zeros falling out which are computer tears he wants to stay ahead of the curve like we mentioned he knew what to do he knew that I have to follow these kids around and Ugh. see what's going to come next make movies for them that they don't even know 
know they want yet. I have to incept them. What him and AIP had made up to that point was like, it's defined basically as 10 day black and white B movies. That served their function, but Corman was getting bored of it now that his confidence in his skills as a director and a producer were matching his ambitions. What Corman wanted now at the dawn of the 60s was to do a 15 day horror movie in color. What he wanted to do was a film adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. He, as a kid, read all of the complete works of Usher and he loved them. But the AIP, complete works of Usher? Sorry, the complete works of Poe, you're right. <laughs> he sorry. loved R&B. The way he could dance. <laughs> but AIP had one concern. There's no Gerstern monster in the fall of House of Usher. So Corman thinks quick and is like, uh, the <laughs> Well, who made the house fall down? So his reply is, the house is the monster. And they're like, all right, fair. <laughs> they're like, and it has tentacles. <laughs> so Corman brought in Twilight Zone. It does have wings, though. Okay. <laughs> Houses have wings, the east wing, the west oh, wing. Oh, 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 oh. I'm poor. Okay. <laughs> I have a, a cellar. Well, where did you sup <laughs> if not in the North Wing? Corman brought in for Fall House Usher, Twilight Zone writer, and all around horror legend. Do you want to pick which one? Uh, Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson to write Fall House Usher. And to star it was none other than Vincent, Vincent Price, Price, who is perfect in every way yeah. fall of house of usher huge success for mm-hmm. aip apparently ran on a double bill with cycle that summer that's how wow. pretty big it was that's so, a fun double feature yeah, i would love <laughs> it of course aip wanted more of these corman poe picks it seemed like throughout the 60s one or two would be being every year after house of usher there was pit in the pendulum mm-hmm. premature yeah, so he was behind all of these all vincent of these. price poe movies they're all corman movies huh. he didn't direct all of them he directed a large portion of them but yeah he's behind all of them premature burial which was adapted by another twilight zone writer and a person who lived the Twilight Zone, Charles Beaumont. Tales of Terror, The Raven with Peter Lorre playing The Raven. It's really funny. I'm The Raven. <laughs> the Haunted Palace. The beautiful Mask of the Red Death. Have you seen that? I haven't. It's very good. Okay, it's good. It's beautiful. It's Roger though. Corman good. It's Roger Corman good. And Tomb of Lygia. There were eight. I've seen that. Is that good? I've never seen that one. Uh, I don't remember, but I know. No, no, no. It's not that good. It's Corman. Good. I remember now. It's not that good. <laughs> it's Corman good. Uh, it's Corman bad. So there were eight. Corman bad. There were eight Corman Poe picks in total, and they always seem to have a huge audience. But let's go back. Okay, so that's throughout the 60s he's making these. Let's go back to 1960 after he makes, I think, like Pit in the Pendulum, the second one. It's a success. And he dared himself to do something artistic that he cared about. Finally, the moment that's all been building. He mm-hmm. wants to do something. I'm not quite sure whether he was at a point in his career where he thought or it was actual where people would watch something solely based on his name being attached to it if he could sell his name roger corman presents exactly if like oh i want to see it because roger corman's name i don't know if he's there yet but i think he thought he was (laughs) so for his next move after usher was an even bigger dare and he was gambling a lot of his self-confidence on the success of this thing so roger corman set out to direct his passion project a movie that he was star is born star is born have you heard of it a movie that he would hope mark him as an artist with integrity the movie was adapted from a charles beaumont novel titled the intruder the intruder tells the story of a white supremacist and segregationist who goes goes to a small southern town that is on the brink of integrating and starts causing trouble and almost leads to a lynching until the townspeople come to their senses. It's no monsters, not exploitation at mm, all. Sounds like a monster. It's worse than a monster. It's <laughs> Man is the worst at. monster yeah. of all. So If we learn anything from anything Richard Matheson wrote, yeah, we're pretty bad. It's an anti-racist movie, but told from the perspective of a racist. It's a very daring movie of its time. The novel was controversial, especially like I said, 1960, but no doubt the movie would be too. But this was not an exploitation, like I said, not an exploitation movie. Roger Corman fervently believed in integration and even though he was a Republican, he's one of those human Republicans where he believes in civil <laughs> rights and he wanted to show how charming an evil person could be. The charmer in question would be played by young William Shatner, another Twilight Zone alumni who had not yet done Star Trek. They raised some money with AIP and Pathé Studios, but neither cover the entire cost. So Jane and Roger had to pay out of pocket to help level off the homeless budget. For the intruder, no sets were built. So what did they do? Go to the South. They went to South Carolina 
Charleston, South Carolina, to film a movie about integration and racism in the early <laughs> 60s. And the town was a little hesitant off the bat to help white filmmakers from the north, but there was this pastor came and he helped them settle in until the townspeople ordered a copy of Beaumont's novel that the movie was based on. And when they found out what it was going to be about, they kindly asked the film crew to go away. <laughs> After that, they filmed a couple different locations in Missouri with local cops and apparently the if <laughs> Welcoming. <laughs> Come on. And apparently the FBI keeping a close eye on the production. Hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. Apparently there were scenes of the movie filmed in a fever pitch while Gene distracted two cops with whatever EIP did for craft services. What? Yeah. Like here's a bunch of Snickers bars. Yeah. Don't look over there. Have you ever seen a table full of pineapples? Like not up close. And Rogers is like, go say all, say all this bad stuff real quick. Put on the hood. Put yeah. on the hood. <laughs> so the movie was made on the run basically, but getting it made was only half the problem because okay, they get it made. It's tough, but they get it made. Now they have to find a theater to show it in again. 1960 America at a preview showing of the movie where they t- it's a test audience. The audience was mostly white, and the reviews were not great. A lot of the audience members were ripping up reviews and saying things like trash Hollywood communists. Those people are the parents or grandparents to awful people in 2019 <laughs> who don't want social issues mixed in with entertainment so they're not good people but Bert Pierrosh who owned the Pacific Drive-Ins he said I will not be playing this movie in the drive-in death, I don't know death. death kiss death kiss yeah the MPA is his next movie <laughs> I got an idea I imagine he would like someone to say something like death kiss yeah. and he'd just turn to somebody and he's like write it write that <laughs> right. you got two days write that we're shooting at dinner <laughs> so the MPAA also would not give their seal of approval for the movie because they used the n-word in the movie this shortly after the MPAA that's uh, strange progressive of them it is but this is a movie where it's used to showcase how bad it is mm. like there was i think so if it was used for fun exactly <laughs> then that's like, a bad oh, example it, yeah it, i mean on. that's what corman said like there was five other examples in the 40s and 50s where that word was used and you made those movies and now i'm trying to show how racism is bad okay. and that word is said by a racist in a movie and you're saying no to that yeah it's progressive yeah that word doesn't need to be said but i'm trying to convey <laughs> a character the mpaa president eric johnson declared that it was time to exercise he said this in a quote it was time to exercise more courage and more conviction in motion pictures this really pissed off corman because he had made dozens almost 60 movie trashy exploitation movies all of them for profit after a certain point he got all the credits he needed he was making movies to make money he knew this now he wanted to make this passion project that dealt with you know this came from a point of courage and conviction and they were not helping him and it really burned him no one seemed to be helping roger was informed that it wouldn't be showing at cans which really sucks but the ultimate blow to both corman and the intruder was that pathé studios dropped out of their distribution deal with corman they helped fund it with the promise that corman would deliver another poe picture and that's what premature burial was that was going to be for Pathé, but AIP got wind of it and they muscled Pathé out of that deal because they wanted sole property of these Corman Poe pictures. So Pathé backs out of the deal. They pretty much gift premature burial to AIP and that leaves the intruder in limbo. AIP does not want that. Nobody wants that. <laughs> it's seen by some audiences. It receives pretty good reviews overall, although not a masterpiece. It's certainly way ahead of its time and better than anything else he was doing. But more importantly, he cared about it. This whole ordeal really, really bothered him and he kind of never got over it. He said that was the only movie that he lost money on and the lesson he he learned was that he should just keep his opinions to himself <laughs> it was a like, damn sh- it's hearing him talk about it now he's so much like everything you know you've heard me say if you never heard him talk before he's mr rogers he's so mild-mannered and mm. polite he's like a genuinely nice guy so when he talks about the pain of the intruder it really hurts my feelings because it seems like i believe in integration and i want to show i want to make this movie and it sucks it really bums me out yeah. so i've been talking a long time never go out on a limb that's the story <laughs> <laughs> never try to make a movie in the south let's try to race through the 60s 
as anybody living in the 60s was trying to do. So, <laughs> you didn't race through it. You weren't really there, man. <laughs> Along with all the pole pictures he's directing, he's helping produce a bunch of movies and giving work to fresh young talent who will work for Peanuts. So much happens in this era, and it's almost impossible to sum it up succinctly since I spent all this time getting us here. Roger continues to stay ahead of the curve in terms of youth culture. He reads articles about the house angels terrorizing a town, so he makes a biker movie starring the son of Henry Fodder, Peter, the Wild Angels. It's a huge drive-in exploitation success and launches the biker movie trend, which was a huge trend of the 70s. It's said that the two of the actors in the movie... Sounds like a certain movie coming out in 1969. Hmm, weird. Uh, Mm, Starring the same person. Mm, Weird. (laughs) This is another rumor. I don't know if it's true, but I read it and I thought you'd like to know. It's said that the two of the actors in the movie, Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd, had sex and conceived a child during the production of this movie. That child is Laura Dern. Hmm. Rumor. Um, I mean, that's her parents. That's not the rumor. Whether she was conceived during the Wild (laughs) Angels. I think they might be dating. (laughs) Anyways, not only is Wild Angels popular, but it made bank for AIP and Corman. The following year, they saw that acid was becoming a big factor in the hippie counterculture movie. So Corman's like, yeah, let's make a movie about acid. So he brought back Peter Fonda, got Jack Nicholson to write it since he had experience dropping acid. He added in Dennis Hopper, who had starred in a pretty good LA horror movie called Night Tide that AIP distributed, not to mention friggin' Rebel Without a Cause. And the three of them, or four of them, they made a movie called The Trip about a TV commercial director who tries acid for the first time. So I mean, this is like the test run of Easy Rider, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Basically, you could see it all coming to this. Yeah. The movie is incredibly artistic and kind of terrifying. So to direct this movie, Corman wanted to illustrate an acid trip as perfectly as he could. And he wanted to translate it. He wanted it to translate well. So he gave the camera acid. So the guy who went to Oxford to learn how to write monster pics, that same guy was like, well, all right, I'm making a movie about acid. I should probably drop a responsible amount of acid for research purposes. An Oxford purposes. man's amount of acid. <laughs> and the cast of dirtbags like Nicholson and Fonda and Hopper were like, they wanted a square-ass guy who's way older than them. Like, yeah, you should probably drop acid. You should pay for it. <laughs> Do you think we could borrow money to buy acid? <laughs> so this whole caravan of actors, they start heading up to Big Sur to do drugs because Roger Corman's like, I hear you have to be in nature to do drugs. <laughs> they drive to Big Sur. I don't know if they're filming scenes or they just go up there to do drugs, but Corman, in typical Corman fashion, builds a schedule for taking acid. Acid. So there's a list of when someone is going to drop this acid. Is my kind of guy. And what sober person would be watching them, making yeah. sure they're okay. Hey, Got to make sure. You need a Sherpa. Very responsible guy. So Roger Corman took acid for research. His, With Jack Nicholson. I think Nicholson was there. For sure, Dennis Hopper and Fonda were there. And I think Bruce Dern was also there. And I think Laura Dern was also there. <laughs> she was probably swimming around somewhere. Apparently, Roger Corman, his high lasted for six hours. And it said that someone said, I forget who, that his face was never more than a foot off the ground. He was looking into the earth. He saw active villages in the earth, like in the dirt. He said later, it was a wonderful trip, but it was a little too overwhelming. And he understood at the end of his own trip that he could not be reproduced in a film. It did not translate. (laughs) But they made the movie anyways, and it was another huge success. More importantly, in terms of film culture, these experiences Peter Fonda was getting from working with Corman were planting the seeds for the idea of a movie. We already know what I'm going to talk about. But before I get to that, let's wrap a lot of this up. Let's talk about what's known as the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. So we already know about his original crew and all the people he helped in production. Let's talk about this new crew who's coming in. 1963, Corman produced a movie named Dementia 13, which I've never been able to sit oh. through. Not very good, but it had two guys directing it's, it's it. It's Corman good. It's got two directors doing it. Francis Ford Coppola, wow. and the guy working second unit was Jack Hill. Coppola went on to... Who's Jack Hill? We'll get to it. Coppola, obviously, the godfather of Apocalypse Now, legendary. Got his star working for Corman. Jack Hill had directed Bloodbath and Wasp Woman, which are two movies, not one, and pretty much made spectacular <laughs> B-movies for the rest of his career. He launched The Women in Cage 
Cage's movie, which Corman produced movies with. You're going to watch one, watch one with Pam Greer. He was big in exploitation movies. He did Coffee and Foxy Brown with Pam Greer. And then boom, Spider Baby. Boom, Switchblade Sisters. Very good movie called Pit Stop. If you ever got a chance to see Pit Stop, watch Pit Stop. It's really good. This is Hill? Yeah, Jack Hill. Jack Hill never got the recognition he deserved until his I biggest- I don't know. He never got the recognition he deserved until his biggest fanboy started screaming his name from the top of a pile of cocaine. That fanboy being Quentin Tarantino, director of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And oh. literally everything else. Go Turner, we did it! <laughs> we, son, of a, son of a cracker, we did it! <laughs> in the early 70s, he gave Martin Scorsese the opportunity to direct Boxcar Bertha a full year before he directed Mean Street, which is seen as his big breakout movie. Scorsese, of course, made a million great movies. <laughs> so, literally a million um, all great movies. All great movies, not Every a single, single bad one. one of them. But he, Hugo. Scorsese also, the end is pretty good. Scorsese <laughs> also helped define the style and themes of the 70s filmmaking with Taxi Driver. And of course, speaking of, Robert De Niro was in Bloody Mama, which was his second screen role ever. Ron Howard was famous <laughs> since he was whistling age, but he wanted to break out of acting. He was already, he was like during the week filming Happy Days and on weekends, he started acting and directing in Corman movies. Corman gave him his that big chance and put him through the rigorous Corman school, which meant here's a couple of bucks, go make a movie, you got six days or whatever. Ron Howard's first movie as a director was Grand Theft Auto, which was produced by Roger Corman. Ron Howard does another movie. I forgot what it's called, but it's like a bunch of cars. He's like, oh, Ron Howard, why don't you come pitch some stuff to me? So he pitches a bunch of stuff and sci-fi stories and like dramas. And Corman's like, oh, that that sounds really good. And I love that you're an actor telling me this stuff. But when you made your other movie, someone pitched a title called Grand Theft Auto. Can you come back in two days with a script for Grand Theft Auto? He's like, uh, all right. Basically like working for Corman, it was said that he teaches you how to manage your time and how to manage your resources. He's with you for the first day. And if you're good, you don't see him again for the rest of production. If you're bad, he's you see him every day <laughs> there's a really funny anecdote he doesn't that, like being with yeah, you <laughs> he preferred not to Ron Howard and Joe Dante both share this thing that Corman says where Ron Howard has an anecdote where he's filming the Saga Speedway which is in Saugus Saugus yeah that's right um, so he's filming this giant car scene with it like Blues Brothers style car crashes and he's only got 45 extras and he got to fill the stadium up and he's like well if I had like 100 people or even 70 people I could make this work so he goes to Roger and he's like I need more extras and Roger says you're not gonna get any here's my advice if you're really good at this you never have to work with me again Ron Howard's like okay <laughs> and just made it work this shot at different angles what does he mean by that if you're really good at making this movie then you don't have to ever work with me you can oh, right. you can move then forward. you're beyond you're you've, gonna you've yeah, graduated you graduated you yeah. never have to work with me again okay. if you have to work with me again you've been held back from the corman school <laughs> we should bring up the ron howard connection you told me about earlier if you are wondering how they got ron, liza minnelli liza minnelli to be in rest of development which is produced by ron howard it's because liza minnelli was his babysitter there's the connection yep. between our stories yeah that's how and that's our bridge <laughs> ron howard as always <laughs> as always the, the connection between two stories yeah you're always two degrees away from ron howard by the time corman's career hits like this era the kind of late 60s he's already got fanboys and one of these fanboys is of course human gremlin joe dante do you know who john dante is yeah i know who okay. joe dante is okay great yeah yeah, I know who Joe Dante right. is. I saw the Twilight Zone movie. <laughs> That's the other great one he did. Yeah, <laughs> he does the best segment in that movie. Ted doesn't, or not, Nightmare on... No, no, no. He, Joe Dante did the... Uh, he uh, does Nightmare on the Wings. <laughs> Whatever distance in the air. No, Joe Dante, he did the one where the boy... Oh, you're right. Who did the one? Oh, are you sure? I'm pretty sure, because that one has this, like, Joe Dante creature. Oh, you're right. It has, like, a Looney Tunes-type character. Yeah, exactly. It. Who does the one in the air? Though? And they're the watching Grimlock. Looney Tunes. Uh, John okay. Lithgow. I don't know. I Did Steven Spielberg do that one? Okay. No, no, no. He did kick the can steven spielberg oh yeah because it's corny whatever joe tande was a roger acknowledge he's not the one that killed the guy (laughs) (laughs) we all know who that was and that's another corman fanboy that i don't bring up joe dante big corman fanboy he made good on paying corman back in the late 70s with the cult hit 
Piranha. It cost $770,000 to make Piranha. It returned $10 million. Wow. Dante, if you don't know, went on to make The Howling, which is great. The Burbs, which is great. Gremlins, mm. which is great. Whatever segment in the Twilight Zone movie, which is... <laughs> I think we know which one it was. Second best of that movie. He gave a chance to a young film critic to write and direct a movie as long as he used footage from Corman's other movie, The Terror, which is horrible. It's terrible. The only reason they made The Terror was because they had built a castle set and he had all the actors around, which is what Corman did. He was just like, you're still wearing this costume. We have this castle for two days. We're just going to film stuff and make it make sense later. So this film critic, it was a guy named Peter Bogdanovich. He used the scenes of that movie inside of a movie inside of a movie and that's Targets. Wow. Yeah. Corman gave, he's like, if you do this, if you find a way to make these scenes work, so, you can make so targets. The, the, so the Boris Karloff movie in Targets was from that. Yeah. So wow. he had to go back and be like, Boris, you owe us two days. Boris Karloff. <laughs> Boris, you owe Boris. me. That's why he's not in a lot of the movie. The yeah. movie is a lot of that Matt Damon looking guy. But like, Bagdanovich made it work. Like, he put himself in the movie. And Targets is a great movie. Mm-hmm. And a movie of that kind of new wave. Exactly. Well. Yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, exactly. one of the people of that He new would wave. go on to make Paper Moon and Last Picture Show. He gave chances that James Cameron, Jonathan Demme, John Salas. Wait, Peter Bogdanovich or Corman? Corman. I forgot what he used James Cameron for. It was like a little Avatar. thing in the 80s. Terminator. <laughs> Jonathan Demme went on to do Signs of the Lambs and he gave Roger Corman a small part in the movie, which I'm always very really excited to see mm. Roger Corman in. The most culturally significant thing to come out of the Corman school, of course, is 1969's Easy Rider. Easy Rider was written by Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and Terry Southern and directed by Hopper, produced by Fonda, starring Hopper and Fonda along with a superb appearance by Jack, by Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. He's so good in that movie. He is. He's probably the best part of that movie. Yeah, he really <laughs> is. Yeah, all Corman students. Easy Rider is a story of two bikers traveling across the country and encountering different American scenes in various states of decay. It's a landmark movie for several reasons. It presents the counterculture in a non-exploitive way. It featured music from the counterculture. There were no clear... It's drugs. He- there's drugs. There's no clear heroes of the movie. I mean, there are protagonists. There's but- certainly a villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There weren't any redemptive superheroes like an old Hollywood that required you to do that. The plot is loose. A lot of the lines were ad-libbed. It's guys just kind of traveling around taking drugs. The protagonists <laughs> lose in the end. And most importantly, it was not a studio picture. It was a low-budget movie. This is the makeup for new Hollywood. Corman had been making low-budget movies for two decades, but nothing like this. Easy Rider, along with Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, which all came out of the same year, it set off New Hollywood. If you ever watched a movie from the 70s, thought, hey, how come I feel I'm sad and I feel dirty? It was because <laughs> New Hollywood set it up that way. Well, what happened was in 1968, Hayes Production, Dirty. They're very dirty. Yeah. Whenever I see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, oh, I that, feel well, like that's filthy. A very, yeah, yeah, that's a dirty but movie. But like overall, like even Bad News Bears, I kind of feel like well, yeah, that's also a dirty movie. I mean, they're all dirty. What's a clean 70s movie? Something uh, with Doris Day? Yeah, yeah, whatever was still lingering around. <laughs> whatever they couldn't shake off. Well, what happened in 1968 was the Hayes Production Co. ended and it was placed with the MPAA rating system, GRX. And that meant you could go extreme in movies and they'll just give you a rating for whatever mm-hmm. movie. You're f- so you don't have yeah. to do this. Like all the heroes live in the end and all the monsters die. No, you can do whatever you want <laughs> with an R now, not X stuff because that's a different kind of theater. You need theater. an X for that. Yeah. That along with the country souring during Vietnam and civil rights blowouts in the streets and assassination, it made the movies reflect the times more accurately you weren't going to get spooky horror movies like The Haunting. You were going to get Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. and Rosemary's Baby. You were going to get... Was that the 70s? 68. Rosemary's Baby also 68. You weren't going to get heroic westerns anymore. You were going to get The Wild Bunch. The Wild Bunch is a hard western and it's mean and mm-hmm. it's ugly. and it's Another dirty movie. That's another dirty movie. It was a, yeah, That movie and X for sanitary reasons alone. Hygiene. And R in content and X in hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> New Hollywood. It was a film movie heavily influenced by the French New Wave which rejected the conventions and rules of classic cinema. Thematically and stylistically, the movies were more 
more modern and artistic. What the movies lacked in cohesive plots, they made it up for in emotions and symbolism. And just like in Corman School, low budgets for the film were a reality they dealt with and they handled perfectly. It made the movies more inventive. They called it the American New Wave, didn't they? I think they did. I wanted Hollywood because Hollywood was in California, um, <laughs> not America. Um, Easy Rider. Not my America. Easy Rider was insanely popular. It was the biggest grossing low budget picture of all time in 1969. I think it grossed $60 million worldwide from a budget of like 400000 It remains one of the greatest movies of all time. I saw it for the first time Easy like last Rider? Year. Yeah, Easy Rider. It's certainly an important movie. I would not put it on my top 10 list at all. As far as I like road movies a lot and it's mm. one of the better road movies and I thought that it was going to be really lame in 60s because they always play it with Steppenwolf and then I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, like my dad's movie. But it's, it's a 70s movie. I love 70s movies. My favorite genre is 70s horror movies. <laughs> they're the meanest things you've ever seen. 70s movies are really sad and they're really nasty and they, they don't hold back and Easy Rider is one of the better of them. I didn't always want to like Easy Rider but I, I really took to it. I don't like Peter Fonda I think or you're a dirty Topper. hippie. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing about Easy Rider and all of its successes. It was distributed by Columbia Pictures not AIP because AIP didn't trust Dennis Hopper and they mm. were not going to fund it. They wanted the ability blame <laughs> they wanted the ability to replace Dennis if he was late to the set just one day. Roger saw their logic because he was erratic and he never directed anything before but he had worked with Hopper on the trip and he was a perfect worker on that set and Corman explained to Dennis like this is a deal you gotta be great you gotta be really good and Dennis was like yeah okay and Peter Fonda was super upset by this clause and didn't want to put that pressure on Dennis Hopper so they parted ways and they found the money elsewhere from the people who had made head so the, the biggest grossing low budget picture of all time at that point slipped out of the grass of AIP because they didn't trust Corman and hmm. Corman was pissed <laughs> livid he of course didn't know that nobody knew that easy riser was gonna be that popular or even that good but that they didn't trust him after everything that he had did for them that really stuck out to him so that was it corman stopped working with american international pictures a company that he worked with since the beginning then he does the most corman thing ever he starts his own distribution company for reels this time new world pictures set up at 88 31 sunset boulevard throughout the 70s he keeps doing what he's good at he makes exploitation movies and helps fresh young talent get their foot into the door he champions independent films in an era where mainstream studios were desperate to find the next easy writer this era of corman sees movies like death race 2000 big doll house my first corman movie which was yeah, rock churning out the hit <laughs> my first corman movie which was rock and roll high school which is the ramones movie <laughs> big bad mama candy stripe nurses hollywood boulevard he helped the release of a mark from fellini in the u.s mm. he stopped directing around this time his last one was bloody mama he said that directing was painful and producing he could do without thinking so he just did that corman continued through the 80s producing slasher and fantasy movies like slumber party massacre and battle beyond the stars which i think is what james cameron wrote on. He was now producing these from an old lumberyard turned studio in Venice. But drive-ins were a thing of the past in the 80s and now it was all about video cassettes and multiplexes so now he's working for that market and it's not that great. And nothing hurt the exploitation movies quite like losing drive-ins and those sleazy movie theaters on 38th Street in New York or whatever people romanticize. Porn theaters? The porn theaters. Say it, Greg. I always think of them where there are theaters where there's a bunch of cats to fight the rats. Well, there's something that is a word for a cat. <laughs> You're nasty. You're a pig. <laughs> I, I got an X. <laughs> My first X. He sold New World in 1983 with Satan on his consultant for some new features. The more notables being Suburbia, which is that punk movie, and Screwballs. Again, those are two separate movies. <laughs> After that, he started a new company, Concord New Horizons, that kept producing these type of movies all through the decade with varying results. In 1990, he returned to directing for Frankenstein Unbound but it was met with mixed reviews. I've seen like stills of it and it looks really bad so I'm going to stay away from that one. <laughs> it seemed like he returned to his roots with these horror movies but nothing was really catching. His true resurgence wouldn't come until the 2000s when the sci-fi channel started making monster movies and action flicks and he was just making a bunch of them. He'd go, he was still alive? He's still I guess alive he was now. in like eight. What? He's still alive? Yeah, Roger Corman's still alive. He was on Mark Maron's podcast mm -hmm. like last year. Still out there, still talking. Still Judy didn't make it. Then I guess Roger's 
doing fine. All the movies that you expect to see on sci-fi, he was behind some of them. Sharknado? He had nothing to do with Sharknado, but he did produce Sharktopus and Piranaconda. Of course he did. Of course he did. That must have sucked that he saw Sharknado like, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> he does them overseas because they're cheap and he gets better deals. Roger Corman is still doing his thing. He's making money producing low-budget horror and sci-fi movies and giving chances to people at the beginning of their career. In 2000, Corman gets his It's a Wonderful Life moment when I... <laughs> tries to jump off a bridge. Pretty much, yeah. When all of the alumni from the Corman School of Filmmaking rallied together and lobbied to the Motion Picture Academy for Corman to receive an honorary Oscar. Hmm. And it meant so much to him. Not that he was doing it for praise of the Academy, but to finally be accepted and not feel like Walter Paisley from Bucket of Blood anymore. Hmm. Again, in 2010, the Academy of Motion Pictures of Arts and Sciences recognized his achievements and awarded Corman with the Academy Honorary Award at the inaugural Governor's Awards. I've said awards a lot. <laughs> On the official website, it reads, through ingenuity, boundless energy, and a deep love of movies, Roger Corman has made more of them than just about anybody. His legendary ability Ability to stretch a dollar allowed him to swiftly conceive and create period films and sci-fi epics on budgets that wouldn't cover the food costs on a modern studio <laughs> shoot. On the website, on a list of his achievements, two stand out to me. Corman has produced more than 300 films and has directing credits on 50 titles. And the second thing they mention is he directed the acclaimed 1962 drama The Intruder, starring William Shatner, their first film to tell the story of the integration of schools in the hmm. South. So they recognize Yeah. Best Oscar for frugal director. <laughs> Here's something that fits into that. They also have a Hollywood joke in there on the Oscars page about Corman that he could negotiate the production of a film on a payphone, finance it with the money left in the change slot <laughs> and then shoot the whole film in the phone booth that's what they say about Corman did he make the movie phone booth <laughs> he might have actually done that he made shark the phone booth <laughs> at his acceptance speech along with thanking his wife and co-worker Julie Corman he says I believe the finest films being done today are done by the original innovative filmmakers who have the courage to take a chance and gamble so I say keep gambling keep taking chances. Some of his movies aren't watchable, but that's fine because his name is th attached to 350 of them. Roger Corman is a lot of things. In terms of this episode's importance, I see him as the father of new Hollywood or better yet, the mama bird puking into the mouths of the next generation. <laughs> but most importantly, out of all of this, what matters the most is Roger Corman is a good guy in the mm -hmm. film industry. He's a producer who doesn't suck. That's so refreshing to see what Louis B. Meyer was doing to Judy Garland in the old Hollywood yeah. and what Roger Corman, not that, not that even a fraction of the people in the new yeah, Hollywood yeah, yeah, were good clean, people yeah. but this that, guy who were choosing to exemplify it was such a nice yeah, guy yeah he said he like I keep thinking Mr. Rogers like if you'd see him talk <laughs> I saved the clip on YouTube but we didn't see it he's just so likable hey, well okay I, I understand I where I'll you're do coming some acid now. <laughs> do you have the acid prepared some of his movies <laughs> might be trash but the man himself is the genuine Arco a nice honest man in Hollywood he has achieved that and is deserving of respect I really wish the intruder had been given the chance because who knows how different his career would have been if it had been given the chance well, but maybe he wouldn't have had exactly. Easy Rider and all that stuff. Maybe you're maybe, right, yeah. Maybe he had to keep failing maybe he so had that it. other people could succeed. And if that's his career, that's sad, but that's fine because he could take it. Hey, that's a much happier story than I had. Yeah. Let, let's rewind it back to that pivot point of okay. 1969. 1969. It was a tango between yeah. the two worlds going on at that time in Hollywood. They always talk. I mean, like, Once upon a time. How many movies did I grow up with where they really pushed the idea of like the late 60s, early 70s? It was a wild time, but like, yeah, the world changed. Yeah. Like it was yeah, crazy. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It, it, it is a weird, hey, Quentin Tarantino knew <laughs> what year he was picking. Yeah. That movie seems to be about a movie star who's kind of like, I can't keep up with this anymore. Yeah. Judy Garland, movie-wise, yeah. 
the world had changed. Like she, what she could offer couldn't fit into yeah. what movies were becoming. I mean, she was dead in 1969, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that model she created of being like, I sing, I dance, I have yeah, live shows yeah. to herself. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that to herself. That's such like the old way to do things. And it's like romantic to us, but like, yeah, it was probably based on like cocaine and pills, <laughs> not eating. Like I think about Vampira a lot and well, like yeah. the things that she went through and she was on TV yeah, <laughs> making like so little money at <laughs> what, like 10 to midnight. But she was going through the same, she was pushing herself through the same thing that that's such the old world. Yeah. And come well, the 70s, like this is fat Dennis Hopper. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like compare Judy Garland to Dennis Hopper. Exactly. Like look at those, like what a, those are both movie stars. She, like she would have loved. Like, you can be ugly in movies? I, I want to be ugly in movies. <laughs> they wouldn't let me be ugly in movies. I think about that era of filmmaking a lot and how brave it was compared to what you couldn't do in the 40s and 50s. The 70s is like a hard hit to the face. Like even Bad News Bears is a tough movie. <laughs> thank um, you, Roger Corman. Thank you, Roger Corman, for and, teaching everyone how to do that. And hey, thank you, listeners, oh, God. for leaving us reviews on iTunes. We've gotten a small surge in reviews and yeah. ratings. Some good, some... Bad. some uh, uh i won't listen to um subscribe to us on itunes you'll yeah. get all the episodes automatically when they're released and yeah. leave us a review if you can on your podcast app it helps make us more visible and we really need that right now we really yeah, appreciate we're it. pushing to be more visible unlike mm. most corman villains <laughs> we've been a phantom menace of sorts for a long time but now we need a puppet with a fang so yeah leave us a review on itunes it really helps us out it gets the word out there you could follow us on twitter at la meekly instagram la underscore meekly facebook like us on that you can look at our our uh, Tumblr page, yeah. lameekly.tumblr.com. There's an archive of episodes. Or you can go to our YouTube page, which yeah. also has all the episodes all and the some episodes. bonus stuff on there as well. Videos, which seem to be very popular when From they were our live aired. shows. Yeah. You can support us financially. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't make any money off of this anymore. Uh, for spot. <laughs> it helps us out to keep us going on Patreon for yeah. as little as $5 a month. We will send you handwritten, handwritten postcards. postcards. <laughs> Every month we'll mail them out to you. And uh, hey, it, it keeps us going. It's nice. Also, we did a thing a while while ago on voice map oh yeah that's right we did the voice map thing we did a tour like our second year of doing yeah, this, this was a really thing. long time yeah. ago it was a tour of the downtown a, a theater. walking tour of walking, the downtown yeah. theater district and you use it you get this app called voice map and you hit certain locations and, and it activates and you'll hear our voice Mies planes have a rules which is not the way we should be doing things. You're much better than me. We we isolate that. <laughs> it's my ringtone. Now. Some of the audio stuff got kind of changed around, yeah. uh, not to my liking. But mm-hmm. people have seemed to have been buying it a lot lately, so yeah. we thought we'd promote it. That's another way to give us money. <laughs> but Patreon's better. I mean, cash in the street is much better. <laughs> Just Venmo us uh, <laughs> at DM Zaffron. You can follow me personally, Instagram Grego Gonzo. I'm on Twitter Grego underscore Gonzo. I'm still on Twitter. I haven't used it yet. I'm at DM Zaffron yet again. Also on Venmo. Give us <laughs> You have no Venmo. I have Venmo. Is that the, okay, I got Venmo. Is that the only social media you have? Yeah, that's, <laughs> my, that's my only way of connecting with people is through Venmo. I pay them to be my friend. <laughs> hey, also, we've noticed that a lot of people from not in Los Angeles yeah. and not even in California have been listening to us. And if you do, let us know. Yeah. If we haven't heard from you already, yeah. let us know why you're listening yeah. and how you're listening. What, what brought you to us? Why us? Are you moving why? here? Is there information you that you'd like to know here? that we can answer for you? Please email let us, us or let us interested. know. We're interested in knowing what you're deal is yeah we want to know what the hell's wrong with you because <laughs> uh, we want maybe want to move out of california yeah, we, can we have questions roles. to ask you <laughs> any last thoughts on this go I, watch the movie quentin tarantino which, which we do not get any we, money yeah from. We, who is not helping us at all <laughs> i don't have final words i said all my final words and yeah. they're all about movies i like yeah i don't really have any final word i think we made our point here quentin tarantino 
I just got a tetanus shot. Oh my God. Tetanus. All right. Oh. Do I have tetanus out? I got the shot and now I shot you. <laughs> so that has been yet another episode of LA Meekly, babysitting Ron Howard since 2013. Isn't he that the year yeah. that we started the podcast? That is the year oh, that wow. we killed Hitler. <gasps> I meant to just hug him real tight. Mm-hmm.